What is up, guys? Welcome back to the Meeting Up Podcast. I'm Andres. This is Ivy Theory. I'm Sabrina. And joining us today, we have Mr. Garrett McDowell from famous YouTube channel, Garrett McDowell. What's up, man? <laughs> Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. It's the first podcast that I've been on in this hellscape of a year. So it's exciting to talk about something uh, as uh, calming as Charlie Kaufman. It's relaxing. Yeah. Existentialism. Let's all, let's all get in the deep stuff, you know? Exactly. <laughs> I just saw a headline for an article that said, uh, I, I, I don't know if you guys have seen it. Uh, why I'm thinking of ending things is like the biggest horror movie of the year. And they called it horror uh, or the most horrifying movie of the year, I think is what they said. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So there we go, guys. Talking about <laughs> horrifying movies. Calm That's us right. down. We're feeling good after that binge. After yeah. that Charlie Kaufman binge. <laughs> yeah, feeling exactly. really good about ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, feeling very odd. Obviously, I, I didn't do the full, full, full binge that maybe you guys did. But I did enough to make me feel stuff. Uh, but yes, guys, we're going to get into Charlie Kaufman. This is obviously something that uh, Sabrina is a massive fan of, RB3 is a massive fan of, and obviously Garrett is a massive fan of. So we definitely want to give it all the credit in the world. Uh, I'm going to let you guys take a lot of the conversation. But this is obviously a, a, a screenwriter, a filmmaker, a voice in the Hollywood industry that has had a significant voice for the past like 20-ish, 20-some years, considering he's been... Uh, so significant. I, I feel like especially towards that beginning of this 2000s era when it comes to the film student times, when a lot of the Sundance people were coming up, uh, were making a lot of experimental films and a lot of films that were kind of breaking the norm and that those films were kind of going slightly mainstream. Um, that's kind of what Charlie Kaufman created when it comes to his style of movies, uh, kind of breaking the mold of what a screenplay and what a movie can be and what it can do. Uh, I, I kind of want to start it off kind of with the most basic questions. What got you into Charlie Kaufman films and kind of what was your first venture into his filmography? And I'll start with our guest, uh, Garrett. Yeah, sure. Um, so I remember watching uh, Eternal Sunshine. That was the first one that I had really dove into. And I think I watched it uh, either early high school, late junior high, because I grew up a huge Jim Carrey fan. Mm. Uh, and I remember this and uh, the Truman Show, I'm watching it and I'm like, well, this isn't very funny. <laughs> uh, and I don't think I really fully understood uh, the complexities of the movie because I was what, like 15 maybe. Um, and then I, after that watched uh, being John Malkovich and was just completely blown away uh, by this filmmaker who's got such a unique voice as we'll uh, no doubt discuss later. But yeah, you were absolutely right. He just kind of evolved what it means to be a screenwriter and their involvement in a picture. So I just think he's one of the most exciting filmmakers working today. Uh, and I can't wait to have this awesome discussion with you guys. Yeah, uh, same question to you, Sabrina. Kind of what was your, your first film and what made you a fan of his work? Yeah, mine was also Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which it's uh, no surprise or no secret at all, but that's my favorite movie of all time. So that was a very beautiful introduction into his filmography and kind of his approach to storytelling. I think it's really interesting. I think he applies a lot of himself into every single story. It's always these like outlandish, like high concept premises and they're grounded because at the end of the day, it's a failed relationship. It's erasing those memories. It's there's all we could go through his entire filmography as we're about to. And every single thing is something that we've all experienced in some way, shape or form, whether it's some existential dread kind of like loneliness, self-isolation, getting older. And since 
it's something so interesting. It's the way that he tells those stories and I just connected with it immediately. I, I, it's not straightforward. You definitely have to think, and it's not always a pleasant time. It's not always fun, but I kind of like to do that. After watching his films, I always feel, um, I always feel like I need to do some like self-reflection and really kind of understand the deeper meanings. And so the way that he affects me emotionally and physically and everything, um, we'll get into the filmographies and I could say exactly what I feel about each and every single one. Um, Mm. but but yeah, so I think I agree with Garrett. He is the most exciting filmmaker. I think he's an exciting storyteller. And um, yeah, I just look forward to every single thing that he does. Yeah. Uh, RB3, uh, what about Kaufman made you a fan? And what was your first reaction to one of his pieces? Um, yeah, so, you know, I am, you know, much like Charlie Kaufman's films, I'm not particularly sure what happened in what order or like what at what time. So um, I will say I don't remember if I saw Eternal Sunshine as far as mine first or being John Malkovich first. But what I will say, though, is um, it's like a, a time loop. Yeah, exactly. But what I will say, which unfancifully had the bigger um, impact on me, um, even as much as I love Eternal Sunshine, was actually being John Malkovich. Um, that movie, I don't know, for some reason, when I first saw it, it literally just moved me in like every single way from just every single character. I felt like a, a deep, immense personal connection to because they're all dealing with something like so personal, so individual, but is dealt with in such a fun and like imaginative, like kind of way. Like, and, and, you know, I remember watching that movie and literally, you know, it just changed my entire outlook of how somebody can even approach the art of like storytelling or the art of, um, or, or the art of, of writing and uh, screenwriting. I mean, what you can do and how you can play with that. And then, um, especially, you know, coming from Spike Jones, And then, especially if after following that adaptation, which I watched uh, when I was in, you know, I went to uh, high school, like on a college campus. So like we, so sometimes we got to take college classes, like even though we're in high school. So I, I, I took like a, a college film course, like while I was in, it was film and theater course at like Cal State Dominguez Hills. Like, and like we watched adaptation and that also just completely blew my mind. Cause it was like, the idea of like a screenwriter writing about himself writing an adaptation uh, and him struggling, like him writing the story of him struggling to write the movie you're currently watching. It's mm-hmm. like, it just, everything just like flipped on top of his head, just absolutely mind blowing. So yeah, like, and I have, I really have like deep stories about like all of these films, you know, personally, like how, how each of them just kind of like blew my mind the more and more I kind of thought about them. Um, but yeah, I, I think to me what makes him such an interesting filmmaker to me is that he is somebody who is so specifically hyper focused on like the mind, right? Like exploring what is the human what is the human mind, um, how does the human mind function, how does it work, and how can you represent that like cinematically, um, in a, in, a, in a mostly cohesive way. I mean, a lot of people you know criticize his films for being a little pretentious or being a little heady or being a little you know, uh, too confusing, but, uh, I think there's a lot of intent and a lot of purpose in his writing. And I think that also makes him stand, stand out as an artist as well. So, yeah, absolutely. And obviously we're going to get into his films. RB3 and I kind of decided to break this down, at least for the first half of our, uh, episode to do his work in writing. Uh, and then eventually after the break, we're going to get into his work with directing. It's interesting, right? Because there is this conversation that I feel like hardcore Kaufman fans have as far as 
a lot of people debate whether his best work is within collaboration with other filmmakers uh, versus his work as a filmmaker himself, as a director himself, might not be up to par with his previous work. I don't know if you guys have an opinion on that, but it's that idea of him teaming up with someone, a director that can kind of take his vision and make it uh, uh, something on screen and make it work from the screenplay on film versus him having full control and being that a tour and making it slightly a little bit more Kaufman, a little bit more, I don't know if a word would be confusing, uh, like RB3 said. Uh, I don't know, what do you guys prefer? Kaufman the Artur or, or Kaufman the collaborator and writer? Uh, I'll start with you, Sabrina. Yeah, I love a bit of both. I okay. think that he's, I think he's a writer that even if he's not directing his own film, he definitely has a heavy hand in, I think, a lot of it. And, and so that's the thing. We're kind of comparing that his earlier filmography of just writing and collaborating with like Spike Jones with being John Malkovich adaptation um, versus him having full control. I enjoy seeing the full control lately um, that we've seen with like Synecdoche, Anomalisa, and I'm thinking of ending things because he get like I interviewed Lee Wanell and he talked about how like directing your own screenplay is a, has a certain sense of accomplishment because you can really make everything completely your own. So I enjoy a lot of these films. Obviously, we'll get into it, but I loved his three directorial efforts and and so I I like him taking full control. I enjoy both. So. Uh, same question to you, Garrett. What, what do you think as far as? Kaufman having full control versus having a director that might hone in his vision. You know, I'm going to go pure unadulterated Charlie Kaufman. I just think it's really, considering he is such a unique filmmaker, having that unadulterated, just raw sense of his style is, is it's really pure. Uh, obviously, Eternal Sunshine is my favorite of his, uh, which is a collaboration with somebody else but I really do admire seeing his vision completely on screen. Uh, throughout his career, we've seen works that he's collaborated with other people uh, that haven't worked out as well. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is one uh, that comes to mind. I haven't seen the film, but I have not heard great things about human nature. Uh, and I think specifically in regards to Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, that was George Clooney's directorial debut. And watching that film, not only do you get a sense of that, but to me, I get a sense that Kaufman and Clooney, I don't think are really stylistically uh, are, are on the same page at all. Uh, so I think it's, there's something really satisfying about watching a Kaufman movie that you know is just straight from his brain, straight from the page onto the screen. Uh, and I'm with Sabrina. The three films that we've seen him direct are wholly unique, even within Kaufman himself. Uh, but they're also in conversation with one another. Uh, and I find it incredibly fascinating. And he's just one of those people that I'm just like, yeah, man, well, that sounds good. Just go make whatever you want to make, <laughs> you know? Like, just let him run loose. I just, I find that really uh, inspiring almost that there's a filmmaker out there like Charlie Kaufman, who's got such a recognizable and unique voice and that uh, studios like Netflix, for example, are able to give him a, a, a amount of money and just be like, hey man, go make a movie. We'll see you in a few years or however long this took. I just, I, uh, I find that really fascinating. So yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because I feel like 
none of Kaufman's films are what I would call mainstream per se, but there is something to say that it is a little bit more digestible uh, uh, as far as his first three films, as far as the filmmakers that are making them, whether it be Eternal, being John Malkovich, uh, an adaptation versus his uh, directorial uh, films, the ones that he directed and wrote. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, RB3. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's what, you know, that's ultimately what filmmaking comes down to, you know, number, number one. I mean, just from having a screenplay, a screenplay is supposed to be the blueprint and the director is supposed to add in the details, right? So when you have uh, somebody like Charlie Kaufman who goes in and add, when he's personally responsible for adding every single detail in this film, then you get the fullest, most complete, unabashed version of his vision, which is going to be a little tougher to, to get behind. But when it's just like a blueprint... It's a little bit it's a little bit easier to communicate now that being said though i will say i think personally his collaborations with spike jones uh, particularly with being john malkovich and adaptation i think you know he and spike jones work so well stylistically together as opposed to like the george clooney thing like garrett mentioned i think they actually do work so well together that there are times where i've seen you know something like her i've thought wow did charlie kaufman have anything to do with this or I've seen, or there's been times where I've mistakenly thought that Spike Jones had directed Eternal Sunshine because it just seems like they just mesh so well together. Um, you know, but that being said, I, 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 I love uh, Select the Key New York. I've talked about that a number of times on, on this YouTube channel, how much I, I love that movie because of, you could literally go through scene by scene and you could find 10 different ways to interpret 10 different aspects. Either you could look at the editing and look at and find an interpretation you can look at the, the sound mixing. You can look at the dialogue and get another interpretation. Uh, you can look at the characterization of a lot of these people in that movie and, and get a, you know, so there's so many, like, facets of that movie you could just kind of break down and get behind and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, the the, the animated one. Um, Anomalisa. I, Anomalisa. I'm a little bit less of a fan of that one personally, uh, just because, you know, I... You know, it just it was just missing a little bit of something for me. And I, I definitely get the metaphor that they're going for, like, all throughout. But it just didn't hit as well for me. But, you know, when you talk about I'm thinking of ending things, that's just another example of how when you go full, you know, it's like I call it full, full Kaufman, right? If you go full Kaufman, uh, you're just going to get the most, you know, in some ways incomprehensible, in some ways very indigestible uh, form, forms of cinema that you could get. But it's all very intentional. And it all means something and it all matters. And that's what I greatly respect. It's interesting, right? Because I feel like uh, I just listened to an interview with Kaufman and he said that he made, I'm thinking of ending things because he wanted to take a book and adapt it into a screenplay because he thought that studios would like that a little bit more because he was struggling to get studios to green light any of his films. It's interesting. I'm looking at the gap right now. It's a five-year gap between... Anomalisa and I'm thinking of ending things which shows to you know to credit to his interview that he is saying that I struggled those five years to get a movie made even though I'm Charlie Kaufman I, I, I mean he didn't say that but it's like one of those things where he's still struggling to make movies he's still struggling to get any kind of financing and backing uh, when it comes to studios and it took a studio like Netflix uh, a studio that is willing to toss money to filmmakers and, and give them a chance and a studio that's willing to take chances uh, considering their streaming platform that gave that chance to Charlie Kaufman. And it happened to be an adaptation of a novel, something that obviously he's written about uh, and he's made movies about. 
Um, so I, I'm curious as far as you guys, what do you think, and I know I'm asking this question a little bit too early, uh, what do you think that the future holds for, for Kaufman considering he struggled to get on thinking of ending things even made, but also considering that probably a lot of people saw I'm thinking of ending things because it was on Netflix, right? I mean, that's, that's usually what the Netflix formula does, even if they didn't necessarily finish the film. Um, a lot of people did see it probably. Uh, I, I don't know what you think, Garrett, as far as what what Kaufman is going to do in the future, considering he said he struggled so much to even get this movie made. Yeah, so Kaufman has been on record in saying that I'm thinking of anything as might be his last directorial effort. I heard uh, that too, yeah. Carantino, he's going to tell you the same thing. So mm. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I, I, don't, I think filmmakers like these, it's like... It, it, Filmmaking is so a fabric of who they are. They're storytellers. Uh, and granted, he will be continuing to tell stories uh, just in a different uh, medium. He's still using a paintbrush. It's just maybe a different shade, you know? Um, so what literally is next for him? It's uh, Chaos Walking that he's directing or that he's working with uh, Doug Lyman on. Uh, Which I've production. been talking about a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 almost its own conversation. If you look at this film, uh, it's mm -hmm. described as a sci-fi action thriller adventure movie, which sounds this, completely this is with Daisy Ridley, anything right? that he's ever Daisy done. Daisy Ridley, yeah. Tom Holland. Yeah, Tom Holland, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which uh, you missed the of, Avengers Affinity War premiere yeah. for. To film yeah, uh, yeah, there's been tons of uh, scheduling conflicts in regards mm -hmm. to this movie. Reshoots. Um, yeah, Fede Alvarez has stepped in to, to uh, do some directing, so... I don't know. It could be like a like a World War Z situation where it actually ends up working out all the all the mishaps or, you know, it could be less so. Uh, uh, but I as far as what I would want from Kaufman, um, just kind of talking about him collaborating with others or maybe the need for somebody else to rein him in. Um, I would be OK with him going back to his being John Malkovich days, making a movie for a couple million dollars uh, mm -hmm. and just being able to uh, express himself, you know, like with the way technology is today, it's not like it was back in the 90s. You know, if you have a phone and you have a computer, guess what? You can make a movie, you know? Uh, yeah. And somebody like Kaufman, I would, I would assume that would be really freeing for him to be able to not have to rely on the studios and just be able to go and do what he does best. And uh, that's tell stories. So I, I can't wait to see what he does next. Again, I think he's such an exciting storyteller. Yeah, in the interview that I mentioned, he said that one of the reasons why he adapted I'm Thinking of Ending Things and he made it into a film was because of the uh, locations, how it was just a few locations and it didn't mm -hmm. seem like it would cost too much money, something that he would entice the studio uh, with as far as yeah. saying, hey, I'm not asking for a ton of money. Um, what do you think about uh, him taking five years and struggle to make another movie, RB3, uh, as far as getting I'm Thinking of Ending Things, even greenlit? I mean, that's, I think that's atypical Charlie Kaufman. I mean, I think his, his scripts are so weird and so out there. And, and in the best way possible, it's just hard for any studio executive to kind of wrap their minds behind it, right? There's that conversation that uh, Spike Jones had in an interview where he said that, you know, when he, they were going around, shopping around being John Malkovich, a lot of times they got the response back, why can't you just call it being Tom Cruise? You know, like, you know, they, and, 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 you know, they fought for the artistic integrity, but fighting for artistic integrity also means not being as easily, you know, accessible to the big studio system. Same thing with adaptation. Adaptation literally came from him being paid to adapt a novel about flowers or about books or a book about flowers. And then, um, and he couldn't figure out how to adapt it. So he wrote, he submitted 
a, a screenplay of him trying to figure out how to adapt this book. I mean, that's just that's just that's just who that's just who he is. He has a tough time conforming to the traditional atypical stuff, which actually, you know, you're talking about Chaos Walking Garrett. That gets me ex- extremely way more excited about it uh, because if it's if it's some weird, you know, trippy thing that is, is also based on a YA series as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that Doug Lyman, look, Doug Lyman, anytime a movie that Doug Lyman touches and that goes $100 million over budget is going to be a masterpiece. Edge of Tomorrow, The Born Identity. Um, he had another one that went over too. Oh, oh Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Um, yeah, a lot of his movies are notorious for going over budget and they're notorious for being great. So <laughs> I, I, hope that, I hope that this is just another I'm, one. I'm else. hoping Chaos Walking isn't closer to something like After Earth, right? You know, I think yeah. uh, Shyamalan was a bit uh, closer to the end of his rope when that film came out. But still, you have a incredibly talented, unique filmmaker trying to make this bigger budget adventure sci-fi film with some big stars. You know, I hope it doesn't go sideways for him because I really admire him as a creator. This cast, I'm looking at it right now. It's just, it's outrageous good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's th- that one and, and I'm super excited for that, but it, but it kind of goes to show, I, I, maybe I'm reading in too much into this, you guys can correct <clears throat> me, but I feel like Kaufman lies in the middle of this weird uh, cinematic uh, boundary of not quite Oscar award winning films, but also not quite like, uh, you know, big money box office film or some sort of thing that's going to make a lot of money. I, I think he's more like a cinephile uh, appetite kind of director where a lot of cinephiles like him, but it's not going to make money. It's not really going to win awards. And it's obviously not a blockbuster. He lies in that weird balance of the middle as far as studios are like, what are we supposed to do considering that, yes, some people like Kaufman, but it's not like he's going to break out and get more people to like him. At least that's what studios feel, that he's not necessarily a money-making director. I don't know how you feel about that, Sabrina. Yeah, he's definitely, he has a a fan base behind him that really adores a lot of his films because people get attached to like being John Malkovich. I've heard so many people say being John Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine, all of those have been some of their favorite films. I'm thinking of anything is my favorite film this year so far. And I know there's not a lot of competition, but he actually does get a lot of like awards consideration and a lot of uh, credit that way. Anomalisa was nominated for best animated feature. And like that's, that goes with a lot of his films. Uh, I think he won won best screenplay. Yeah. Yeah, He won for best screenplay. A lot of his stuff has been actually like nominated and considered for sure. I think that he's kind of just, he is in that in between a little bit though, because he's like, misrepresented i think i think that struggle that you talked about that he has as a filmmaker and as an artist kind of is something that's interesting and i think that's what holds him back a little bit because he is himself which we all enjoy and we all celebrate but like anomalisa had a kickstarter we we wouldn't maybe wouldn't even have even seen it if the kickstarter wasn't as successful and i didn't even know had a kickstarter until at the end of the film there was a special thanks and it just kept going it ended up having like 6,000 people signed up for the Kickstarter to help make that film get made because it is so unique and it is so interesting. So I just hope he gets the credit working on Chaos Walking and with the success of I'm Thinking of Ending Things, the critical success that he's had. I know a lot of people have enjoyed it. Um, Some of my average movie-going audience friends watched it and were like, what did you just tell me to watch? (laughs) Like, why, why did you do that? So I, I hope he just continues to let his art shine Mm -hmm. and to immerse himself in his art the way that he does and 
I think he has his audience. I think he'll like, he'll continue to gain that type of audience as he continues directing possibly more films. I would hope so, but definitely working on the screenplay and having a director like a Spike Jones or someone else like Michelle Gondry, but like anybody else in the future taking on his scripts, I think it could definitely shine in that way. Here's, here's my next question to you. First of all, I, is it a critical success? I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, it may, is it? <laughs> I feel like at the at best, it's like most people maybe like, I don't know if that's a critical success though, uh, but but maybe you're right. Maybe it is a critical success. I'm, I'm just not sure. Uh, my, my question though is like, Kaufman, when he did this back in 1999 or 1998, whenever he wrote it, this was like that kind of like, I don't want to say revolutionary because that's too strong of a word, but it was a very original thing to do as far as what B&Jel Malkovich eventually became. Nowadays, is this kind of now 20 years later for, for not, I'm not talking Kaufman fans like you guys, but for, for a regular movie going audience, maybe they're not that impressed with the kind of Kaufman-ish type movies considering they've seen other weird experimental films in the past considering i mean what did we get the lighthouse last year like people are used to this now as far as back in 1999 where this was like cool and original now we get kaufman type films you know every couple months right well i i gotta go back on, i gotta go back on you on that a little bit because okay. i think now weird is the mainstream now i think that's i think that's the that's thing. what i'm saying though like now but now now people now, what we what you saw in being John Malkovich in 1999 is the exact same what you see in Get Out in, tw in 2018. Like it's almost like they're almost like cousins. You know what I mean? But that's what but, I'm saying. <laughs> but, but 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 I think there's oh there's still room for more weird and experimental stuff. You kind of need okay. a you kind of need a, a a side genre or a a, a cornerstone of cinema that continues to push the edge in order for cinema to keep evolving. And while this was while being John Malkovich was groundbreaking in 1999. I still argue that um, being, uh, I'm thinking of ending things is groundbreaking in 2020 because I think, you know, I think there's going to be somebody who watches I'm thinking of ending things, you know, uh, for the first time and get into this treasure trove of Charlie Kaufman's filmography and understand that there are rules that you can break in the screenwriting world. Uh, what do you and think, I, Garrett? Yeah, so... If we're talking about back in the 90s, 1990s to now, you know, it's a lot of time has passed. And as I kind of hinted towards earlier, technology has evolved to such a, an intense degree. So it's not really like it was back in the 90s. And nowadays, I think RB3 is exactly right. However, it might be the mainstream for film fans like us or people who maybe enjoy uh, a, a deeper, more psychological film, but they're not like, dorks like us you know who uh talk about uh, my, uh charlie kaufman movies on a podcast you know uh but i do think that there is um there is value to be had in a filmmaker who doesn't concern himself with the only his only concern with the box office return is can i keep doing the thing that i want to do you know i don't see him being like is this a is this a bit too confusing for people i think he's making movies for film fans. And I think he's trusting that the audience who he's kind of making this movie for will find that movie. And I think mm -hmm. with Netflix or Amazon Prime or what have you, you're cutting down the cost that it takes to distribute a film. Mm -hmm. uh, and I go back to a movie like Mother, 
which had a wide release or something like Midsummer, which also had a wide release. Lighthouse did as well. A lot of A24, a lot of A24 horror movies do. And what ends up happening? They get killed in audience reviews because people see the trailer and they're like, I thought this was a, a scary movie. What, what is this? You know, especially with something like Mother. I remember seeing that in theaters and one lady at the end of it just being like, what was that? Just out loud. <laughs> so you get people like, I don't know, like my mom going to see those types of movies. But something like Netflix, like you said, we're in a pandemic right now. We're not going anywhere. The, at worst, people can watch that movie. They have a Netflix subscription. They're already paying for it. They'll mm -hmm. watch it and 20 minutes into it. That movie specifically uh, is like, mostly sitting in a car and talking you know yeah. so i think most people are going to be like okay this isn't really for me and they're going to go click, click away and watch the other thousands of choices that they have yeah. money aside i admire a filmmaker who's like just kind of putting himself out there and it's like this is the story that i have to tell and people are he's trusting the audiences are one smart enough to decipher it themselves and two are wanting and are kind of starving for movies like this i mean how often do we hear that cinema's dead and all we get are superhero movies and all these in my opinion kind of trite arguments so it's like well look at people like charlie kaufman who else is doing it like this guy and i'm telling you it's nobody and i i find that really exhilarating especially as a big film fan yeah absolutely and i feel like that that's very true one of the things i want to get to now in kind of the same question but kind of moving on to his actual filmography, which is what I should have been doing. Um, sorry, I got distracted <laughs> with general Kaufman questions. Um, is the thematic elements of what he's contributing to film, um, which a lot of it, if not all of it, is existentialism, some sort of existentialism, some sort of humanity. Uh, RB3 mentioned the mind. Uh, uh, Sabrina mentioned relationships. Uh, there's a lot of, I mean, the artist, you can mention that as well. There, there's some sort of artist elements in, in a lot of his films. Um, for the most part, thematically, as far as the themes he's trying to hit, uh, Sabrina and I have, have talked about the idea of existentialism, where I love a lot of existential films, and I've seen a ton, if not, I think all, <laughs> existential films, considering that that's kind of what I fill my mind with. Do we feel like thematically he brought anything new to the table with, I'm thinking of ending things specifically, um, because I think that was my one critique. If you go back and rewatch our review, I said, I, I kind of felt like the theme of the film was presented to me, given to me and like stabbed right in my head, like maybe 45 minutes or an hour into it. And I still had like an hour and a half left. And I was like, good Lord. <laughs> I think I got it Kaufman, but, I'm going to finish it. Um, so that was like my one criticism where I was like, God, I think I get it. Uh, do I really have to do this uh, again and again? Uh, but I did. But anyways, that's kind of my point is like thematically, since so many directors have been inspired by Kaufman uh, to do the kind of films, to talk about the stuff that he talks about when it comes to relationship, the mind, uh, existentialism, predeterminism, all that kind of stuff. Do we feel like he brings anything new to the table with his films or, or, I'm thinking of anything specifically. Can I go ahead and take this one? Sure. I, I'm kind of I'm kind of chopping at the bit here. So, yeah. I I think a lot of his films, kind of again existential, uh, but they're about a person, usually a guy, a white guy, <laughs> uh, who kind of has this piece of their life missing, uh, and they're trying to investigate why that's not there and why they're not living life to the fullest, and maybe how could they do that. 
And usually it goes the supernatural route in order to mm -hmm. discover that. Being John Malkovich, obviously, Synecdoche, Eternal Sunshine, all of these have some sense of, uh, even uh, this, this newest film is kind of, was kind of paranormal in a little bit, but I, I don't think it's, I think he, in keeping it in mind that he is dealing with a lot of the same ideas. I mean, it, it seems unfair to me to like listen to like a Miles Davis record and be like, oh my God, he's doing jazz again. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> it's a Miles Davis record, you know, but it's all about the approach and how he's telling the story. Uh, and the the mediums that he's using and the characters, I think his characters are so rich here. Mm. Um, I, I think, again, a lot of his movies are in conversation with one another. When we get into specifics, I we can talk about that. But to put him in a box and say that, I don't, I'm not saying that you're saying this, but I, I, I think it's a fair criticism to say that he's kind of repeating himself. I think maybe he's examining these films with the next movie and thinking, oh, he's almost yes-anding himself, which... I can't think of a lot of filmmakers that are doing something like that, that feel like they're all thematically really similar, but they're also mm. all in conversation uh, with, with each other, which is, you know, I, I'm gushing here. <laughs> I'm gushing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, let's get right to it. I mean, 1999, being John Malkovich, put him on the map, uh, his collaboration with Spike Jones. Obviously, I could write an entire dissertation on the year 1999 when it comes to signific the significance of film. There's been dissertations written. I've, I've, I've read them. Uh, Amy Nicholson has an incredible, really long article about 1995, 1999, the year in film. And I, it's, it's a great article. I recommend you guys go check it out. Um, I forget the publication that she wrote it at, but it talks about how 1999 was that one year where you could get Star Wars, uh, the Matrix and being John Malkovich, like three movies that literally changed Hollywood completely. Um, but the film did it because a little bit because of the oddity of the film. I feel like that's one kind of the main point, considering it's like you you crawl you crawl inside this place, you go inside John Malkovich's head, and you kind of control his consciousness. That is kind of odd. Like you can't deny that. Uh, but what was it about the film that kind of revolutionized a little bit of, of Hollywood filmmaking, RB3. I'm going to toss it to you because I know you said this one is probably your favorite. Um, yeah, I think, I think. well, for one, you know, when you talk about the, the, the late 90s, that's also into a conversation about, you know, the filmmakers that are emerging during that time too, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the Kevin Smiths, the, St the Steven Soderberghs, uh, all these people were making, breaking huge ground. Fincher. And, uh, Fincher, yes, exactly, in 1999. And, uh, yeah, a lot of these filmmakers were, were blowing up, becoming big, and a lot of them were coming off the, the, the indie circuit um, and the festival circuit. Um, well, being John Malkovich is actually funny because Spike Jones, who, um, you know, he, he has a, a, some connection, some family connection to Hollywood, so he, mm. he got a, a bigger-ish bigger -ish opportunity, but he's also mostly, you know, we talked about in our Spike Jones episode, he was yeah, mostly known for music videos during that time, mostly known for, you know, super, super big music videos, and also um, being one of the jackass people. So, uh, and, but, uh, you know, he, uh, but he actually took, 
you know, I, I, I believe the story is he met Charlie Kaufman. I, I'm not sure exactly what the story is, actually. I don't, I don't want to say anything. I, I, I do know the story. Oh, actually. go for yeah. it. Go for it, <laughs> uh, So Kaufman was trying to find somebody to make this movie, and he ended up sending it to Francis Ford Coppola, who passed it to her daughter's boyfriend, or his daughter's boyfriend, Spike Jones. There so, there yeah, there, so there you go. That's, that's how the, the match made in heaven. Match made in heaven. And listen, um, <laughs> I, I connected, I connect, I connect to this movie in a lot of different ways. I think, you know, uh, I think the, the idea when I first, when I first saw this movie, the idea of it being told from the perspective of a puppeteer and mm -hmm. somebody who is vying for control of this artistic and, you know, that's one of the running themes, like you said, Andres and, and Charlie Kaufman's thing, uh, artist, the artist struggle, right? Him being an artist who has no control of his real, you know, real life and the real situation that he's living in with Cameron Diaz is, characters like super obsessive animals so he expresses his emotion his feeling through his artwork which is puppeteering which is literally controlling mm -hmm. something else um so that alone like literally just the whole opening sequence when it's just him playing with the puppets um and uh i believe the the, the title and by the way the music in this by carter burtwell some of the best music ever I actually used uh the track puppet love and when i think my first short film um ever and so i used i used that song from from this movie in, in that short but uh yeah i that so that just from that whole opening thing i'm already like locked in right and he starts to meet cameron diaz's character who is uh, obsessed with animals and obsessed with all these pets and then you really come to understand that she um in and of herself uh, might be might be trans i mean she she loves being inside of a a, a man's body the entire time and she even goes as far as saying like yeah this is the way i just straight up prefer to live life um so like her kind of her self-discovery in that sense was also fascinating and then we get to uh captain keener's character who's like this like um super dominant like femme fatale who's kind of and then you know who's kind of lending john cusack's character this idea or this sense of control but really, she's like controlling him and manipulating him in all these different ways. So it's just a really, really great, fascinating story, um, and takes a lot of traditional character tropes that you will see in other genres and other kind of you know uh, comedies slash dramas slash kind of mystery films. You would kind of see a lot of these character tropes too, but they kind of flip them and make it uh, really human and really personal in an organic way. So definitely one of my favorite movies for sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll toss the same question to you, Garrett, as far as what was it about the film that, that kind of did it? And obviously, thematically, there's a lot of metaphors uh, about like everything RB3 said. I mean, I think he nailed everything. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I, was, it, was it the theme of it? Was it the structure of it? What, what was it necessarily about the film that kind of really pushed the envelope? So at this time, back in the 90s, independent films were really taking uh, more of an audience they were they're appealing to more audiences I, I think of films like goodwill hunting which was a, a huge groundbreaking movie in regards to just two guys made a movie and it ended up winning some awards which impressed a lot of people you have somebody like charlie kaufman come along and tell a story about like i, I don't want to you know besmirch john malkovich but i don't like a b-list actor at the time you know uh like you had mentioned people wanted Tom Cruise, which I think could have almost been a little bit more interesting. <laughs> uh, but uh, you, you have Charlie Kaufman who comes along and makes what I think is his funniest movie to date uh, and approaches this idea in a way that is, it's absurd and it's bizarre and it is existential, 
but it's it's almost a far cry from what we can expect from him today in regards to mm-hmm. just replay value and uh, uh, and how much audience just general movie going audiences can appreciate the film. I think this is one of uh, one of his more crowd pleasing movies just because mm-hmm. it is really really funny, and I think in a weird way it's kind of aged like a fine wine. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this movie, as you mentioned, there are some transgender politics in here. I think some of which haven't aged amazingly, um, but I look at this film as applying it to a social media lens and looking at how we all kind of strive to constantly check in Mm -hmm. on celebrities and find out what they're doing and who they're dating and this TMZ kind of lifestyle and Twitter and, you know, all the stuff. I I find similarities between what uh, uh, John Cusack's character is experiencing and almost wanting to have that lavish lifestyle to, to have the money, to have the sense of happiness that he thinks that he'll find with John Malkovich. Uh, but, you know, again, it's just about control. It's just about wanting to uh, dominate the other person and, again, play them like a, like a, like a puppeteer. Uh, I think it's aged beautifully. Uh, and I think it it's really does set the work, uh, uh, set, the, set the groundwork for what we can expect to Charlie Kaufman uh, that I think is just explored and uh, examined more so uh, in his later films. That's a good point, right? Because you're, a lot of audiences were a little bit more accepting mm-hmm. back in 1999 for original content, considering all the original content we got back in 1999. And it's really mm-hmm. interesting the way you talked about the idea of the avatar of it all where where you have a different persona where you get to be your actual self versus a persona you put on um, to present in front of others um, is another re- really interesting thematic element inside the film. Uh, and Sabrina, even when he, oh uh, yeah, oh, go, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, even when he takes over John Malkovich's body, he even still kind of reverts back. He dresses the same. Yeah. He his hair his hairstyle is the same thing. He's still doing what he loves. He's not a different person, mm-hmm. but he's a different person. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. he's still like what he wants to be. But he thinks because of you know having the money and all these other resources that it'll make his life better. But it ends up not like nothing really changes. He's still got an unhappy relationship. He's not terribly creatively fulfilled uh and he's not really fulfilled with himself so it's kind of you know we're kind of end where we where we begin but yeah Mm -hmm. you go ahead and take it away sabrina yeah it's that idea of like elevating yourself we always think if i had this maybe i would be better at that maybe i would have more confidence and it's that kind of struggle with identity that we get with john cusack's character being insecure about kind of like being a puppeteer and continuing that on, even when he introduces it to Catherine Keener's character for the first time, she makes fun of him. And that's kind of how society sees him. But if it's like, oh, if I'm John Malkovich, he's famous, he's already an actor, I could just move on to puppeteering and people will consider it art and people will go see it. So that's just one aspect. But then again, yeah, what we have with Lottie and her struggle with identity after going into the vessel that is John Malkovich's uh, mind at the time, that, that tunnel that goes into it, it's interesting to think about how people think that they'll be fulfilled if they're in different circumstances. So every single person in this film kind of struggles with that a little bit, except for uh, Catherine Keener's character. She's kind of She's kind of chilling. She's kind of the main puppeteer behind all this. She tells John Cusack's character, she's like, you need, we need to make this a business. Um, she, you know, starts 
dating John Malkovich and then also falling in love with Lottie and John Cusack's character like back and forth and playing them like puppets and it's just everybody coming at each other trying to be the most elevated version of themselves in this film and it's always that admiration for something bigger and something more she's Catherine Keener's in love with Lottie and when she's in John Malkovich and then she finds out John Cusack was actually in John Malkovich's uh head during the, a few of those times and then she's in love with him and she's in love with the puppeteering she thinks it's amazing art but it's because he's john malkovich and so it's it's everybody constantly just um striving for something bigger striving for something more striving to be something other than themselves and struggling with their identity basically and and that's the thing that i enjoy about this movie is because everybody has been through a situation similar to that in any way shape or form when you're growing up when you're becoming a young adult going through your adulthood there's always that kind of insecurity that we have on always thinking in the back of the of our minds if i had this maybe i could i could do this for a living if i was born in this different circumstance or or anything if i lived in a different place i could do this so that's always something that I found really interesting because in this film we realized that's not the case. And it's, it's really what you go for. Yes, his puppeteering did succeed better than the way he did. But like Garrett said, he kind of reverts back to himself. He grows out his hair. He acts like himself. He's not, he's not the personality that John Malkovich was. So just because he is John Malkovich during this time, it doesn't mean that he is actually an elevated version of himself. He just is pretending. He's going into this vessel and struggling with his identity and still not hitting it, it on the head. Sabrina, yeah. I have a question for you uh, yeah. and I guess the group as a whole. Since we kind of established that this movie is at least dipping its toe into kind of uh, transgender and the transgender psyche, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this movie is almost like kind of I don't know, I felt like it's, it's almost making light of that topic. And if we are saying that kind of be content with who you are and you have to be happy with who you are and happy in your, literally in your own skin, how do you think that that relates to Cameron Diaz's character potentially wanting to live as a man or uh, wanting to explore this side of herself? Do you think it's almost kind of like, like poo-pooing on that idea a little bit? Because I at least felt like it almost was, or at minimum is uh, kind of teasing it a little bit. I think we could see it like that, but I don't think that's what it's meant to. I think it's trying to show that when, we, when we're adults, it's very obvious when we start this film that Lottie and John Cusack's character like, just aren't content and aren't happy. And she experiences something that she's never felt before with being John Malkovich. And I think that she just wants to hold on to that and she wants to grasp that. And she thinks in her mind that it's being a man. And then we find out that she also was struggling with her identity and her sexuality because she ends up falling in love with Katherine Keener. We don't know prior if she had those feelings that she just kind of suppressed that or what her sexuality really is. And then at the end, she ends up with Katherine Keener. So I think it's just that taste for something different that she experienced by being John Malkovich for those 15 minutes when he was just um, having breakfast and living like a daily, like normal life versus then a little bit later when she had her first sexual experience being John Malkovich with Katherine Keener and how that kind of definitely changed her. And so I don't, I don't think it's making light of the subject. I think it's kind of bringing something interesting that when we get a taste of something that we don't understand and we feel something particularly, um, it's that struggle of understanding it because she, her first thing right away is, oh, I'm transgender and this happens very suddenly. 
but it just ends up at the end that she it ends up being in a lesbian relationship. So I, I could see that, but I don't think it's meant to do that. And I didn't really take it as uh, making light of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I didn't necessarily take it as uh, making light of it necessarily either. Um, I definitely uh, can under, I could definitely understand that, but I also think, you know, we, I, I, I personally, when I, when I first watched it, the, uh, the trans stuff went completely over my head. Right. And I think that's intentional. I think it's supposed, I think, especially in 1999 where, you know, now we live in 2020 and we could look at LGBTQ rights and we could, you know, you know, be a lot more appreciative and be a lot more understanding, but especially in 1999 over that, that stuff was overwhelmingly not popular in, 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 in America. Um, you know, a lot of times that was looked down upon, frowned upon, especially in cinema. So I feel like he was trying to, I think the movie kind of tries to toe a line between addressing the stuff, but not really actively saying stuff out loud, but also like, you know, I think, I think having the film end with a full gender transformation or full gender, uh, transition might've been, you know, maybe a little, I think, especially during that time, it might've been a little too outside of the box. And I think, you know, especially for a filmmaker like Charlie Kaufman, I think for him, probably him addressing the subject and approaching the subject uh, with, you know, uh, you know, he might say subtlety, um, you know, what we might look at today might not be subtlety, might be an offense or taking light of. But, you know, I think I think is there. And I think I think that, like Sabrina said, the end result doesn't you know, it just ends up being a lesbian couple at the end. But, you know, part of me does still wonder, did Cameron, was Cameron Diaz being genuine in her feelings of, like, actually feeling represented inside of uh, a man's body? Or was it, like Sabrina said, was it just part of her journey of self-discovery, too? So I feel like that wasn't necessarily addressed full out, so we can't really, it's kind of tough to have, like, a, 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 a firm conclusion on it. But I think that's, you know, like all things in Charlie Kaufman's films, it is just based on your interpretation. So Yeah. It's interesting to think that both B and John Malkovich and The Matrix came out in the same year and, and they have <laughs> some sort of similarity. And it's interesting, right? Yeah. Because I'm thinking about it right now and I'm making that connection and I'm like, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> because The Matrix has that too. Uh, obviously, The Matrix has um, the creators, the Wachowskis, have come out and said and openly said that something that was considered uh, a, a theory or, or an interpretation beforehand is now almost kind of confirmed. Um, but the, that idea of, of that uh, transgender um, um, uh, concept and that ideology is inside the Matrix, and it's also kind of touched upon in Being Jal Malkovich. I think the Matrix probably does it better. Obviously, the Matrix probably does it a little bit more subtly and with sci-fi and all that. But it's also the question of the, the prediction of social media, which I think is absolutely fascinating because uh, this is 1999, considering it's right before the boom of the Facebooks and the MySpaces and all that. Um, and to think that it predicted both um, a lot of people's, um, the way they see themselves and at the same time, the way they're gonna present themselves on in a different world. Obviously the Matrix does that firsthand when it comes to Neo. Um, it really is, it is really interesting because a lot of the people were paying $200, I believe it was, 
to for 15 minutes to be John Malkovich. And most of the time that we saw him, especially in the beginning, he was just sitting down eating breakfast. He was running over lines. He was doing the most mundane tasks any actor could be doing, any celebrity could be doing. And for some reason, everybody was still drawn to it. Everybody wanted more. And it does kind of reflect, I love what Garrett brought up, that whole social media aspect. When we see people mm -hmm. posting their food and we see a celebrity at a certain shop and then um, every Ariana Grande posted a picture of a coffee shop and then that coffee shop got sold out like for like three yes. days There was yeah. lines wrapped around the building. It's something that's so interesting that I didn't even think about within this film um, But yeah, it it really is about that like struggle with identity and stepping into somebody's shoes even with the most mundane tasks makes us fulfilled like it, it's something very interesting Yeah, there's a lot there obviously we can get to even more layers and layers <laughs> as far as class and as far as other issues that are uh, inside this movie. Uh, but we have to move on considering I took up so much <laughs> of our time uh, at the beginning of this conversation. So uh, real quickly, uh, none of us, I think, have seen human nature. Uh, no. So let's move on to adaptation, um, which is uh, another film that's very... Uh, singular, unique, different, odd. Uh, RB3 kind of nailed it before when we when he when he talked about it. Considering it's a very meta movie, uh, uh, rewatching it now, RB3, because obviously we rewatched this one and we really talked about it when we did our Spike Jones episode. So I still remember <laughs> that conversation we had. But uh, looking at this movie back, looking at it now in 2020, with all the interpretations of these films and with the meta stuff that goes on inside of it do you have any thoughts on it or or is it still pretty much the same um yeah i mean i i again like this was one of those ones i uh i've talked about where, where i saw it before but i you know to me the one of the things that you know really grows upon you is how much detail is put into especially the whole twin aspect of it right because it's about um nicholas cage playing the twins uh donald uh, it's, it's about him playing Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman, right? Mm -hmm. And then you really, and in that in that twin dynamic in that twin relationship, uh, it really highlights like the kind of dichotomy um, that is often kind of expressed in a lot of Charlie Kaufman films, right? Like there's one who's the go getter, one who's the taker, one somebody who is you know who just goes after life and just does does whatever. Um, and there's the sad um, mope of an artist who's like struggling and self-contemplating and overthinking every single thing that they make. And even though Donald's supposed to be like the dumb, you know, the the dumb one and the and the and the and the, the one who really doesn't understand screenwriting as well as Charlie does, he ends up getting his movie sold just because he has more confidence and he just writes and he just does it. Um, and that's something that you know I think actually is approached later on in this filmography. And, um, and select the key New York in a very different way um, between the husband and wife character um, and, and, and that battle between artists. And, but I, I think that's even there in, um, in, 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 in being John Malkovich too, like that kind of idea of like, you know, there's one way, there's, there's, there's the Lottie character who's super fire and super like on top of stuff and super um, dynamic. And then there's the kind of meek and sheltered character, right? Uh, so that's kind of, uh, you know, beyond the obvious commentary, right? Like the whole, beyond the whole, you know, romance that's built on between, um, between the actual adaptation that's actually taking place in this movie, starring Meryl Streep and, um, and Chris Cooper, um, that little like 
kind of side romance is kind of oriented and this really sweet thing of plants. And how it's kind of built on the foundation of this really cynical Hollywood system that is standing behind uh, making this movie to begin with. And they, they kind of go out of their way to, 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 to show. Um, I love that scene where he's having the, the dinner with the Disney executive and he's like pitching this movie to, to her and, she, and she's like, what? I, 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 I don't get it. And um, I also, I, I, there's so many scenes, but yeah, I don't want to keep hogging up time, but yeah, great, great movie. Uh, I kind of want to frame that question to you, Garrett, as far as the commentary on Hollywood itself, uh, which I think is a lot of fun considering this is kind of what we're in right now. Uh, what do you think Kaufman is saying about movie studios and screenplays and movies and how they actually get made and what and why they're chosen? Um, yeah. Throughout so this movie? Getting, getting in Kaufman's mind here, I have to wonder because three years earlier, I mean, probably, I mean, it might be three years when you consider the production of this movie. He makes a film that was, as we kind of established, it was a hit. It might not have broke records or something like that, but considering the production budget of the film and how much it made, it was a hit. And so, and it also received uh, a lot of uh, award recognition that year. So Kaufman is trying to, I guess, replicate some of that magic. And there's even references to being John Malkovich in this movie. So to me, it's Kaufman trying to maintain himself, maintain that weird, unique voice that he has, but also having producers being like, but yeah, but let's make a little bit more money, you know? <laughs> do, do what you did, but do it in a way that also makes us money. And I think that very idea is the conversation between the twins. You have somebody who uh, might be a little more uh, energetic, I suppose, or confident, but they're also writing crap and attending uh, script seminars that are just giving like the most bland, basic, boring notes that you could possibly give. Uh, so he's still trying to maintain the sense of self and originality, but he could also kind of divert into making essentially the worst movie that he could with this subject matter, which I feel the movie intentionally divulges into, which is this fast-paced thriller. There's kidnappings and murder and intrigue and all these things. And so to me, it's Kaufman almost like, fine, you want, you want the thriller, you want the Silence of the Lambs, whatever, I'll give it to you. And makes this kind of kitschy, corny version of the story uh, where he kind of abandons that that uh, truth and that that vision and that voice that he has. I think it's really, I, I have not seen any Kaufman movie uh, knowing what the movie was about going into it. And I watched this movie uh, over a quarantine actually, uh, not knowing what it was about and just being like, what is this? <laughs> this is wild. Uh, so yeah, Kaufman literally in a conversation with himself about how to trace, uh, stay true to himself and how to cement his voice, further cement his voice in Hollywood. And how do you go about that? You cash out and make something a bit sillier and that'll make a little bit more money? Or do you make the weird indie drama about existentialism? And I think I know, <laughs> I think I know which one won out with this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because that was kind of my reaction watching the movie for the first time. I can't lie. It was, what the hell is going on? <laughs> what is happening? Especially that third act that you mentioned. Uh, yeah. It's kind of Kaufman tapping out and being like, all right, this is what you wanted. Uh, Sabrina, what was your first reaction watching this movie? That's something that I'm definitely curious about. Yeah, so I watched this when I was really young and I don't think really? I was in, yeah, I wasn't, well, the first time I watched Eternal Sunshine, which I feel like is pretty accessible, I feel like it's easy to understand by the end. I watched that one, I think when I was like 11. Um, so the first time I watched Adaptation, 
I think I was like 13 or 14 and it wasn't the right time to watch it. Cause yeah, it is like that. What are you, what, what am I watching? What are you telling me? But on rewatches since, yeah, that commentary on Hollywood, on being an artist, on just that whole, that whole idea of having that twin brother who is writing a shitty script and getting celebrated for it in town when he's actually working his ass off as an artist and staying true to himself. It's something that's really interesting because I think everybody that, that has been an artist or has done any type of art, even everything in this industry or any, a lot of other industries, staying true to yourself sometimes is the hardest thing because you, there's an easy route sometimes, sometimes cashing out and going a certain way is the easy route. And like almost kind of, um, almost like, like you'll be successful and it's not really like a question about it, but then staying true to yourself. It's how many people are going to connect to this version of me, how many people are going to really understand what I'm trying to say. And I feel like that's kind of that conversation we had around Charlie Kaufman this entire time is how is he connecting with people since being John Malkovich all the way up to I'm thinking of ending things. How has he connected with people? And I feel like he's gotten his tribe, but this film coming out um, with Spike Jones again doing another collaboration, I think is really interesting because he, this is so early for him to be this meta about this already. I, I just, I, looking at it now, I applaud him on that. And I, I think it's really interesting and I love this movie. And it's, it goes with all of these. Binging all of these movies in the middle of a <laughs> pandemic brings yeah. out the weirdest emotions I can uh -huh. <laughs> possibly have. Every single thing you can feel you will feel it watching these. Um, so this was a ride again. <laughs> it's interesting yeah. having this conversation about this movie specifically because I don't know if you guys saw, but Barry Jenkins is making The Lion King 2. Yeah. Yeah. And I was kind of like, this is kind of that adaptation conversation where it's like, Barry, I get it. You got to keep the lights on, you know? <laughs> uh, but also, can we get another Moonlight? Can we get another If Beale Street Could Talk? But I, I understand you're, it's, a, it's a job. Sometimes you got to make a money and then you can go make the... You know, Taika Waititi's kind of doing the same thing. You know? I was going to mention Taika, yeah, because Taika yeah. does something similar when it comes yeah. to his films. Yeah, I'll make but a that's... Thor movie and then I'll make a weird vampire movie, you know? <laughs> but that's the thing about um, someone like Taika Waititi and why he's like the first person who comes to mind when we talk about something like this and hopefully Barry Jenkins when he takes on The Lion King, but they don't compromise their voice. They're not making mm. like a really shitty like blockbuster movie. We that see we know with, of that we, that we know, know of with Barry Jenkins because we don't we haven't seen it yet. Well, I'm hoping it's gonna yeah. and yeah, but right, Taika right. doesn't and a lot of the a lot of the people that we've also seen do something like that. Taika has that particular voice that still shines through, and I believe Barry Jenkins as well. And then obviously we have all these directors like Nia DaCosta taking on um, Marvel movies and. If they can have their particular voice and if they can have their style still shine through with all of this, then that's awesome. And I don't really consider that selling out necessarily. I, um, it's not like what Donald in this movie is doing where he's just writing any movie yeah. and shopping that around. Yeah, to be clear, I don't think Lion yeah. King 2 is gonna be garbage. Uh, okay. I do yeah. hope that he puts his voice in there, and it's Barry Jenkins. He's not. I don't think he's gonna. I don't think he's capable of making a bad movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think again, it's the conversation, staying true to yourself, and trying to get something that pleases audiences, but also trying to deliver something artistic. 
because people well, always say in Hollywood, it's like a one for you, one for me. Sorry, yeah. we're all talking, but like they'll, they'll say that they're like, I want to make something um, that really comes from the heart and comes from my art, but it's one for you, one for me. And it goes right. back and forth that way. So, you know, you need money. This is, this is a business at the end of the day, as much it is, as it is art. I keep trying to butt in just to say this. However, uh, this is something we talked about, uh, uh, Sabrina and RB3, on our um, Dinner with Andre episode for, for Bibiani. We talked about the concept of, of, wait a minute, it's always been one for you, one for me. I'm making the big blockbuster because this is the studio, what they want, and I need to make money. And I'm making my indie film that is super artsy and it's all my voice. However, now I feel like we are now in the in the new era of movies when it comes to the fusion of both. Uh, and we mentioned Taika being kind of the perfect example, but I mentioned Ryan Coogler as being the perfect example, uh, considering he made Creed and he made Black Panther, Oscar-nominated films, yeah. two movies that are kind of both. They're, they're mm -hmm. Oscar-worthy films and they're big blockbuster films. And Ryan Johnson too. Ryan Johnson, Ryan Johnson too definitely deserves to be in that conversation. It's that idea that it, it doesn't necessarily have to be one for you, one for me anymore. It could be, mm -hmm. I'm doing this for the studio, but it's still my art piece and it's still a, a worthy film just as much as a Moonlight or just as much as a Brick or just as much yeah. as any other indie yeah. artsy film that people like. I think Black Panther can be up there with all of them, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, and but, same with Creed. But, but in order to do that, you have to kind of like amass like a certain like brand or a certain name or a certain like kind of recognition behind you and i think that's what kaufman did i think he i think it's funny because you know when you watch i think literally the opening of this movie does the amount of job needed to like cement him even if regardless if he was nominated for an oscar or not right the movie literally opens with him being on set for being john malkovich so it literally tells you hey this is the guy who wrote this movie that you love now look at this movie. This is literally about him, written by him, but starring Nick Cage, playing him. So it's like, mm -hmm. uh, so it just gives you that, like, right off the bat. And that's, you know, that's something that they talk about a lot in music, like, in music, right? In music theory, right? Like, they talk about if, you, if you're a musician and you're, like, a singer, you should always be the first voice on the album that the consumer hears, right? You always should be the first voice. That's, like, the whole idea, right? And that's kind of what Troy Kaufman does inadvertently in this film. Like, he kind of cements like hey i am gonna write myself into this movie to show you this is me this is who i am and this is uh you know if you're gonna if you're going to go into this movie you better if you're gonna go into any one of my movies you better expect some weirdness some trippiness and you're gonna expect some truth and honesty because that's gonna be there too and we're gonna talk about that when we get to uh synodos uh, new uh or, or, or i'm sorry uh synecdoche new york but synecdoche. that is uh uh yeah uh but but that's one of that's another funny uh little aspect that kind of rings through throughout the entire film is that's all about truth and integrity, no matter what, even if you're dying from it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I have to give so much credit. I mean, obviously, obviously, everything you everything you said is pretty much what this person said. Um, I, I listened to the Big Picture podcast when they were talking about I'm thinking of ending things uh, when they had Amy Nicholson on, and he he said the same thing. He said Charlie Kaufman is giving a self reflection. That's kind of what art is. That's kind of what we want in a Charlie Kaufman film. So when people are like upset that they're like, oh, why is this so weird and Kaufman-like? That's kind of what you signed up for when you went to see the movie. Um, so yeah, that's totally spot on. Uh, I want to move on to Internal Sunshine because we have to go to break. Uh, and I and I want to give this movie at least two minutes, right? Uh, make, it, make it 30 <laughs> yeah. seconds. Uh, that's all it needs. It's not um, a great one anyway. Yeah. 
it's just Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet. But either way, uh, <laughs> I'm going to give you the floor, uh, Sabrina, obviously, because this is your yeah. movie. Yeah, this this movie changed my life completely. I think this changed my perception of myself, my perception of my relationships, my perception of time and memories and everything. I think it is so special. We have Jim Carrey kind of playing this timid, shy, not really a go-getter. He's kind of insecure a little bit. We see a lot of Kaufman kind of dabbling himself into characters. So I don't want to make an assumption that this is what he's like, but he's kind of telling us this is a little bit of what he's like. And this is somebody who's always, always wanting more, but not actually doing anything to get that. And then he meets Clementine and we have that interesting story structure. And she's the exact opposite of him. She has that manic pixie dream girl-esque type of vibe to her that he kind of clings to, but she's a lot more than that. She, she is like, driven and fiery and happy with a lot of the aspects of her life. She, she works at Barnes and Noble. So she's not striving to be like a great writer or anything like that, but she's happy with the life she has. And she's content with the life she has when she meets him. And it's just interesting that he like clings on to her. And then when their relationship ends poorly, um, she decides, cause she's impulsive. She decides to erase him from her memories and then he finds out and he's about to do the same and he comes to regret it and the reason why I love this film so much is because I think we've all had those moments in life where we've had certain situations and I was like if I could forget about this person or this thing I feel like I would be happier healed moved on um, but it's kind of one of those things it really talks a lot about the human condition and how every single thing we go through every single thing we feel affects us in a certain way and was meant to happen for us to be the person that we are today. If this chunk of time was taken away from us, maybe we would be completely different. If, if I forgot about one particular person, I might be a completely different person right now. And, um, and it kind of shows that everything happens for a reason and they make their way back to each other after this happens. And they're continuing on with that same cycle, possibly, who knows? Um, but there's so much with the story structure and the score and the direction and the performances. I consider this an absolute flawless movie. John Bryan's score is something else. I also he did Synecdoche, New York as well, and it, he is so immensely talented. I was able to see him live, and um, every single piece of this puzzle works so well, and that's what makes it succeed. There's not one thing that you can really even if it's not for you, you can't say this was bad. You can't say the score is bad. You can't say the direction and the cinematography is bad. Everything works. And, and so that's why I genuinely think objectively also very biased that this is a absolute perfect film and it makes me feel all the different emotions and I love it so much. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because I, I love, I, I smiled a little bit during your, your conversation, Sabrina, because of how you're, you just turned 23 <laughs> and you're already so existential. It's like, I thought about my life and my relationships because we've I've all been like this baby. lived through this <laughs> span of life. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like, you were born like yesterday. Um, yeah, I'm just saying, you, you guys are all so young and you have feel all these emotions. I think it's incredible. Uh, to to uh, back her up, though, I've yeah. gone through breakups. <laughs> and and this yeah. movie has literally changed the way that I that I view oh, there those you go. breakups. And I've talked to friends who have gone through bad breakups who haven't seen this movie. So I get to take a little bit of the little bit of the, the, the smarts from this. But telling them, you know, it's exactly like you said. 
it's it's almost like a cliche platitude, but everything happens for a reason, and the experiences that you have make up who you are. You know, I I don't know if you want me to kind of go off on why I love this movie. Oh, absolutely, please do. Yeah, um, pretty much everything that Sabrina said, I'm totally we're completely in step in this movie. But uh, having watched this movie when I was younger and then uh, rewatched it recently for this, it reminded me of. Are you guys familiar with the poet John Keats? No. Okay. Uh, John Keats was a 20th century poet and he died uh, very, very young of tuberculosis. Uh, and he has a poem called The Ode to Melancholy. Uh, and it's a poem about him kind of mourning the life that he doesn't get to live and the mourning the the opportunity that he feels that, uh, and the the uh, the knowledge and the art that he feels like he's not being able to give to the world because he is dying so young. But in that, he's able to appreciate the time that he does have. And it makes these memories so sweet and so almost kind of potent in a way that he's able to hold on to these and cherish these. And I think that and Eternal Sunshine are really, really uh, a parallel in that thought. It's like, yeah, you'll have these sad moments and you'll have these moments of melancholy, as Keats puts it. But you'll then also have these moments of happiness and love uh, it reminds me of that scene where they're under the blanket and he's like, just let me have this one, you know, just let me have this one. It is yeah. so, uh, so crushingly sad, <laughs> but he's kind of just saying like, this is one of those bright moments. This is, this is the sunshine that I'm talking about, you know? Uh, but with that also with, with great light comes powerful dark, you know, to, to, to get into star Wars, but you can't have one without the other. Uh, so you need to appreciate both of them. Uh, that way you can appreciate your life and go on living it in a way that is full of life in and of itself. Uh, I think this is, again, a masterful movie. I, it's my favorite of his by a whole lot. And I'm not sure if anything is going to beat it anytime soon. Yeah, it's interesting. It's most people's favorite, which is why I kind of want to toss the question to you, RB3. As far as the, the Michelle Gondry of it all, uh, the forgotten hero uh, of Eternal Sunshine, considering that everyone kind of refers to Kaufman when talking about this movie. Do you feel like Kaufman should get more credit or, or should should we talk about Michelle as well, considering she's the one who who co-wrote it and, and who also directed it? Well, he, right? He, Michelle Gondry's the dude? Michelle, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I mean, well, for one, I think Michelle Gondry is one of the all-time dopest underappreciated directors in general. <laughs> um, they, he, uh, they, uh, they, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there's uh, talk, I don't know if it's sure or not, but that Michelle Gondry actually directed a commercial that did the whole uh, bullet time effect before The Matrix oh, did no it. Way. And that's where The Matrix I got it from, was from the Michelle Gondry commercial, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I might be incorrect on that, but I think I, 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 I read that in a couple places. But uh, yeah, Michelle, but he... I mean, also did the Green Hornet, which I, you know, we talk about that whole like, you know, uh, big budget thing or whatever. I mean, that was kind of a, a not so great example, even though I do like that movie. It's a guilty pleasure for me. But um, I, but you know, when talking about Eternal Sunshine, I think there are a lot of visual elements that really bring the film to life in different ways than Spike Jones would do it. I think the Spike mm -hmm. Jones kind of approach to uh, uh, Charlie Kaufman films is a little more straightforward, a little more. Um, just kind of shooting it as, you know, it's kind of scripted. And of course, there's surreal elements like that amazing sequence and being John Malkovich when 
John Malkovich goes into his own head and it's just a room with John Malkovich's. Um, you know, that kind of is surreal and kind of over the top. But even then, it's not like some sort of crazy camera angles or anything like that. I think mm. Michelle Gondry brings more of a little bit more of a stylistic perspective to it. I think, to me, that scene when they're walking on the sidewalk and you just see cars falling uh, in the background randomly for, like, no reason, I think that's definitely uh, Michelle Gondry kind of kind of thing, right? Just adding the weirdness to the frame. Uh, I think to the, to the ending sequence where there's that kind of be- beautiful poetic monologue that Jim that Jim Carrey's going on and they're at the uh, the house on the side of the beach and then the water's crashing inside the house and this is kind of darkly lit cinematography with just the flashlights the main source of light and I think those are very potent and very striking you know directorial decisions that go beyond the page right that goes beyond the screenplay so I think you know I'm sure that Michelle Gondry and Kaufman collaborated a lot on the vision how they want to see things but I think there is a heightened sensibility to this movie that does make it stand out from the rest of Charlie Kaufman's filmography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's why it's also more accessible too, because I think, you know, I think that there's a lot of visual storytelling that eases you, that pushes you and nudges you in the direction uh, a little bit more uh, in this movie than there is in, in other Charlie Kaufman movies. So, Well, yeah, rewatching this one, and maybe it's just me considering that I'm this weird guy um re-watching this movie it kind of reminded me a little bit not completely of uh your name i don't know if you guys have seen your name yeah, yeah. yeah. have you seen your name i have uh, yeah i made me cry oh <laughs> uh, there you go uh rb3 have you seen it yet because i told you to see it but you still no, haven't seen it and i know you haven't seen it because it's hey, anime. I got you, Andres. No anime i got you you and me <laughs> i'm watching it i'm watching it I we're swear. gonna have a little breakout meeting just me and andreas <laughs> yeah i don't know if you got this too uh garrett but but it, it but it, the, the play with time and relationships the mm-hmm. idea of how that can influence the other and the idea how there's this uh, a timeless connection between two people. Uh, obviously, your name does that a little bit more uh, upfront, considering the whole body switch element of it all. Um, mm-hmm. But the the play with time and the play with relationship to me kind of reminded me of that, um, mm-hmm. and the idea of memories coming from somewhere and not knowing where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what it reminded me of, and and I, and I kind of appreciate the uh, romantic aspect of it all. I'm not a big romance guy. Uh, as far as movies go and as far as anime goes, I know a lot of people love romance anime. It's not really for me. Uh, but the time element of it all is something that's super cool. And it's something that's also in I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Um, I have a question back. for the group. Yeah. Is this a romantic movie? Because I say no. What do you guys think? I What's think funny? I'm sorry. Go rom- ahead. Oh, no. All good. <laughs> I honestly consider it to be more of like a science fiction comedy drama romance. I wouldn't even be able to put it in one single category because I do believe there's like the scene you mentioned, that is an incredibly intimate romantic moment. And we get a lot of those that are realistic. It's not him showing up to her work with like this big bouquet of flowers and professing his love to everybody in front of Barnes and Noble that we see in a cheesy Mm -hmm. movie. But it's that awesome (laughs) with the boombox. No. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Yeah, it's that like authentic, romantic, intimate moments that we actually get in our real life, and that like kind of reflection and realization of those moments and how profound that they are on ourselves. Yeah. RB three. It's funny because um, whether it's romantic or not, I think you know that's definitely that's definitely tricky, right? I think there's there's a, a question that I have 
a furious debate on with uh, a professor in film school is is there is there actual character development in this movie right because mm-hmm. when you think about like when uh when 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 the you think about the whole sequence of how it all happens right and we learn and this is uh, this is a classic Kaufman thing where the beginning happens to also be the end right mm-hmm. um so like you kind of think about this film and the entirety of it is kind of like a circular structure of like hey uh they're, they 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 fell in love with each other they actually met each other and had a great time with each other and then they both erased each other they both raced uh each other's memories of each other but they ultimately end up there's a little wink and a nod that they might there might be a possibility of them recouping and re and re re recoming at the end so the question is like well if if you know we obviously saw jim carrey's jim carrey's character um change and we saw him be more attuned and more understanding to the idea that you know not all relationships are built built to last but if he gets his memory erased anyway is there really um, is there really a point to 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 saying that there was a, a character growth or character development in that I think, instance? Or I think well, that it's stunted by by this. I think it's delayed. I think they if if they were in a world where that didn't exist and Lacuna didn't exist and they just had to deal with their breakup, I feel like these characters would have had development. But we don't see any within the film because. Like you said, they get it all erased and all those shared experiences that they had and what they've learned from these experiences all go away. So that's all taken away from them. So it's stunted. And then at the end of the film, obviously we don't know. It's like a will they, won't they? We kind of think they will. And they might possibly go through that exact same scenario. They might date for a few years, love each other very deeply, and then have a very hard breakup because they loved each other deeply. And then after that, they will learn. You know, we they get completely... Uh, you know, it's like one step forward, five steps back. Like they're they're all the way back to the beginning. Uh, so yeah, there's technically no character development. All the development happens with Joel while he's going through his memory throughout the entire film, but then it's erased. So. I think there's also something to be said for the development that we feel as an audience because we're watching them go on this journey completely removed from it. Obviously, that's how movies work. <laughs> uh, but we we understand the importance of this journey regardless if they're going in a circle and they're back at the same spot, we know the importance of that journey and what that means to them, whether they know it or not. Again, the ending, it's kind of a litmus test. That's what I was referring to. It's like, do you think it's romantic? Because I don't think that they're going to work at all. But the movie says that's okay. That's life. That you, you go through bad breakups. You're not meant to be with everybody that you meet. And that's fine. That's the, the spots in your mind as the title is referring to. That's okay. You know, it doesn't need to be a spotless mind. It doesn't need to be a, a life without sorrow. We're yeah. human. We're supposed to experience those things. Yeah. And obviously it's kind of like the, the, what did you get from that relationship as well? It's that poster behind you, man. La La Land. That's right. <laughs> it's the That's ending right. of La La Land. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Wait a minute. Um, <laughs> yeah. That, there's definitely a lot there and, and it's definitely a film that, that, I don't know. It brought up a lot of memories and I'm, 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 I don't know why it slightly reminded me of, of a little bit of the aspects of your name, at least with the time and the sci-fi elements of it all. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually, I actually got eternal sunshine tattooed at the top of my thigh, not just because I oh. love that, not just because I love it, but because it's kind of that reminder that everything happens for a reason. Like we said, that cliche line, but it's, it's really the truth. And I feel like that's what we learn as an audience from it. And so that's, that's that significance of that tattoo and it means a lot to me because i love this movie for everything that it's saying yeah 
Absolutely. Um, alrighty, guys, we're going to go to break because this is going to be the eternal podcast uh, <laughs> of the spotless mind. Um, either way, guys, after the break, we're going to get into the rest of Charlie Kaufman's film. So make sure you guys stick around. This ain't funny, so don't you dare laugh. With the 450 divide you in half. You getting at me equals a club laugh. You do the math. Take you out the equation. Check out this snippet from The Meaning of J.A. Bayona where I give my infamous Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom take. Enjoy. So Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So, yeah, coming off of the stinkers, I was like, all right, I'm going into this. I'm going to have zero. My expectations is literally rock bottom to the floor. I expect this to suck. I'm going to hate myself for watching this. I walk, I literally just watched this movie before coming here to record this podcast. Walked out of the theater, came right here. Here's my initial thoughts, everybody. I fucking love this movie. Ace. What? I fucking love no, this movie. No, no. This might actually be why, if not my favorite, my second favorite why? Like, Jurassic Park movie. No, everything. You're the one who rigged this. You lost my eight followers, bro. You're like, yo, unfollow Ace, unfollow Ace, bro. Just do it. He's wrong, bro. Dang, man. I uh, genuinely want to hear why. Check out our new website on geeksofcolor.co/first-cut. To check out our reviews, our videos, and articles that pertain to everything First Cut related. Check it out. Come along, children. Now we're going to have a little music. What is up, guys? We are back talking about Charlie Kaufman. Now let's get into Synecdoche, New York. Uh, fingers crossed I pronounced that correctly. Uh, this is a film that I think all three of you guys said that you really enjoyed. Uh, specifically, you, RB3, you mentioned how this one was one of your favorites as well. And this was, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is this his first directorial debut? I believe this is his first uh, directed film. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, no, I, I actually stumbled across this film. Um, I actually didn't even know Charlie Kaufman uh, was like a director or, or, or writer behind it. I actually uh, just saw it pop up on one of the channels, you know, one of the movie channels. I think it might have literally been the movie channel, actually. Um, and um, I actually saw it, watched it. I actually didn't see it from the beginning. I actually saw it from about like uh, a third ways in. So uh, the movie's about two hours and uh, about two hours and four minutes. So I think I saw like, it within like the first 50, like after the first 50 minutes that passed. And, you know, not knowing anything about it, I was just so weirded out. Like, and Philip Seymour Hoffman has always been one of my favorite actors. And I actually saw this, um, you know, I had gotten to a Philip Seymour Hoffman phase, like real, like soon before he passed away. So I was going, you know, I was watching a lot of his filmography, not knowing he was going to pass away, but just, you know, knowing that he's one of my, he's, he's a great actor. Um, and, and, you know, so that's what really drew me into it. But, I was so confused because I thought I missed like some sort of time dimension or tra- time hopping when I first saw the beginning of the when I missed the beginning of the movie because there was just jumping from so much like time after time after time. So I, I, I watched it, didn't really understand it, but I was like, man, I'm curious. I had to watch it again from the beginning and watching it from the beginning. It became painfully obvious that this wasn't like a sci fi movie or a fantasy movie. It's all just about the human life, the human experience, the the tragedy of of life and death and the contemplation of death and how how much that kind of how much us as human beings are ultimately end up being scared of that and how much from an artist's perspective how much we spend our entire life obsessing over 
um, obsessing over, for one, art itself, being an artist, creating art, how much we obsess over that over our real lives, and two, how much this particular character thinks much more about death than he does about actually living life in and of itself. And it ends up becoming, he ends up living like this really sad, miserable lifestyle throughout. I almost kind of think of that uh, that one scene from from Rick and Morty when uh, I think uh, Morty puts on like a, a helmet that like shows him his entire life before his eyes. And he ends up dying like from falling from like uh, some, he ends up having a bunch of like end of life, almost near life experiences, but he ends up dying from like falling off of a ladder or something like that. <laughs> and it's like the most like, sad traumatic like four minutes of tv but it's all condensed into the one thing and that's kind of what i think about this movie is how can you condense an entire person's life like within this dream realm reality um within two hours and i think that's where charlie kaufman kind of kind of gets at so it's really fascinating to me yeah it's interesting because he has a play on time in a lot of his films we just mentioned eternal sunshine and the play on time and that uh, and also, obviously, I'm thinking of ending things and a, a lot of his other films as well. Uh, what were your thoughts on this film, uh, your first time you saw it, uh, Garrett? Oh, man, I have to go back to when I watched it on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, so I've never seen it, so I just watched it a few days ago. I watched it with some friends, uh, many of which loved this movie. Um, really? I think it's I think it's really good, uh, but out of the three that he's done, it's my least favorite of the three. Um, but I'm right there with you, RB3. I think the film is well i uh, uh, god bless you for watching the movie 50 minutes in that's got to be tough uh but to me the film is that idea of stream of comp- consciousness mm. memory and re- recalling your entire life uh moments before you die or you know the last few years of your life uh i think it it's a very intricate movie i think all the performances are fantastic philip seymour hoffman Rest in peace. He knocks it out of the park in this movie. He is so, so amazing. Um, it's probably my favorite performance in a Kaufman movie. He is, he's just he's unstoppable. So, so good. Um, as far as the film goes for itself, I think I'm glad that uh, uh, Kaufman is able to take some of the lessons that I think that he might have learned uh, in Eternal Sunshine as far as directing is concerned and he's able to apply them here because this is another film that's dealing with memory uh, in a way that isn't linear you know it's bouncing around and again it seems much more stream of consciousness uh i noticed first time watching the film they mentioned that it's like i think one of the characters says it's halloween but then on the on the calendar it says it's march you know and there's a lot of time differences and it's it's not very specific on what exactly time of year it is or uh you know even what what year it is in general uh but i think for myself where the film falls a bit short is i think kaufman he does a lot of explaining or just straight up telling the audience what the idea of the movie is. A lot of it comes into play when, uh, I don't remember the character's name, uh, but Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Caden, yes. He, it's, it's a, a lot of it comes into play when he's directing. He seems, he's telling the actors, this is what you're feeling, aka this is what I'm feeling. This is what this moment means. This is what life means. There's this real big, long monologue, kind of like I'm doing now, <laughs> uh, with a priest, and they're doing uh, like a, 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 a mock funeral. And that scene, the priest is just kind of just straight up saying, 
you know, it's like grabbing the camera and he's like, hey, this is, this is kind of what the movie is. It's the human experience. What is it about? It's about everything. And to me, I would have, again, I really like the movie and I, I applaud its ambition, but I would have just preferred letting the audience just kind of be like, here's, here, here it is. Why don't you figure it out? You know, let them be confused. You know, I don't, I don't remember uh, Stanley Kubrick, like sitting the audience down and being like, okay, this is what 2001 A Space Odyssey is about. He's like, all right, I'm going to plant this seed, you know, see in 50 years when you still kind of know what the movie's about. Uh, but yeah, I applaud the audacity of this movie, but uh, it's probably my least favorite of his directorial efforts. Yeah. It's interesting. The idea of the exp exposition of it all, considering mm -hmm. that, that, He's worked with other collaborators and this is his first time. So he made sure and got that out there to the audience. Uh, I, I want to frame the question to you, Sabrina, being a Kaufman fan beforehand with his previous work and this being his first directed uh, film, what did you catch anything significant and different? Number one and number two, uh, I think I asked you already if you prefer like full Kaufman mm -hmm. directing behind the camera and writing the screenplay as well. I think um, in terms of the three films he's directed, I think this is probably the one that I like the least as well. But I don't dislike it at all. I just think that out of every single one that he's either written or written and directed, it's probably just the one that I um, connect to the least and mm. kind of understand the least throughout the entire film for certain elements and certain aspects not just like the overall theme of the film but it's kind of something that i still want to like search within it i don't dislike this film at all i love every single one that i've seen from him that he's worked on i love and i enjoy a lot so this one it's i really really like it and i like kind of where he's going with it because of course again like he's playing with memory he's playing with the mind he's playing with death and existentialism and art and kind of what that means to a person and if that fulfills somebody how how that all is because he gets that macarthur grant and he's still never fulfilled he always wants more he continues to want wants more until he creates this entire basically like scale of New York and and people are just living and this is his big great art piece this is his great theater piece and he is never ever fulfilled with it and it's kind of I loved a lot of the smaller aspects of kind of like that shared experience that we all have as humans that we all go through similar things at different times at the same time we never know what anybody else is going through when they're going through it um, like I love that character that follows him around all throughout the beginning of the film and then he's like, I've been with you always. Like, I'm always with you. And it's, I think it's just kind of saying that, like, it's, it's an understanding of each other. Um, this, is, this is a film that I'm still struggling to explain or still struggling to understand and explain to this day. And I feel like on multiple rewatches, because I've only seen it twice. So this is also my least watched out of all of his movies. Um, so every time that I go through his films, I pick pieces out to try to really understand it and this one's definitely interesting to me because like rb3 said he's so obsessed with death he like fears death he has I, I don't remember the exact term for it but clearly throughout the entire film he'll have like something on his face or like rotting teeth he's constantly at the doctor and he's constantly worried about his health he's like um going to the bathroom and just like he's peeing blood and it, it's something that he's always concerned with his health and with um all of that going forward and at the same time doesn't really ever finish it throughout his entire life. He never is fulfilled throughout his entire life that we see him. And 
it's kind of that struggle as, as a human, even if you're not an artist, as a human, it's like whatever goal you're reaching for, you have to understand that there's going to be a point where you need to be fulfilled and confident in yourself and then also continue moving forward, but celebrate what's happening in front of you and what you're doing because he kind of, he loses all his relationships. He loses all his friendships basically throughout this entire film because he's so obsessed with this goal of creating this huge art piece. And, and yeah, so I, I enjoyed the film a lot. Philip Seymour Hoffman is the best part of this movie. Everything that he does going through the different ages, skipping like eight years and all the health issues that he does have throughout this film and what he has to show it's, it's something else. This is an absolute outstanding performance. I, I do want to say going off of uh, what you said there, Sabrina, the actual um, thing of the actual uh, disease or I guess uh, uh, mental illness, mental disorder of thinking that you're, you're dead uh, is actually called walking corpse syndrome or uh, Cotard delusion or the Cotard delusion which is actually the last name of Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. His name is Caden Kutar. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, he's literally telling you, he th- you know, he's thinking that he's a, a walking corpse. He's walking dead. Like, he's literally dead inside. And I think, you know, when you see, as you see his art piece is getting bigger and bigger, and he's, like, overly obsessed and overly concerned with, like, uh, you know, dying and, and death and all of that. And meanwhile, you look at um, his wife's uh, 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 lifestyle, who's played by... Uh, Kathleen Keener in this movie, um, her art pieces, um, her art pieces, at least, you know, in the beginning of the film, seemingly get smaller and smaller and smaller, um, even though she's living a more of like a carefree kind of art, you know, free art lifestyle. And she isn't as concerned with with the intricacies of, of the day to day, like dying and whatnot. In fact, literally in the first scene, she's coughing, um, which and she ends up dying from lung cancer. Mm-hmm. So Again, it's like he he sets up, you know, there's like this kind of setup and payoff thing that happens throughout this entire movie where you kind of end up seeing where all these characters are going to end up just by the little details that each of the characters present. So, And it is interesting because with her minuscule art, it's actually being celebrated and he's making something of this grand scale and nobody knows about it. Nobody cares about it. Nobody's celebrating it. And she's making this minuscule art. So it really is them going in opposite directions in their life. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you guys all mentioned Philip Seymour Hoffman. I, I think that's kind of the elephant in the room. It's kind of hard not to mention him when talking about this film, considering I, I think he overshadows a lot of the film, in my opinion, uh, considering his performance is just so big and in your face and so powerful that you're just like, damn, this is just him just doing just by himself in in a, in a stage just acting and you're just watching it. Uh, at least that's how I felt watching the film considering he's giving such a, a incredible f- performance of it all uh it, it's funny because we never mentioned any of the other performance uh, performers in the other of his films uh as much as we mentioned philip seymour hoffman we, we have jim carrey kate winslet nick cage meryl streep uh obviously john malkovich but 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 there's there's something to be said i i one of the most important parts of being a director uh is communicating with an actor and it's getting performance out of an actor uh, and this is his first attempt at that. I kind of want to frame that question to you, Garrett, considering that mm. Kaufman is able to get this out of uh, a Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is not hard considering he's an incredible actor. He could probably do it for anyone. But the idea of, of actors and Kaufman films, and if there's something significant to that, and if there's a, a, a way to 
carry a performance inside a Kaufman film? Well, again, Kaufman at this point in his career, he's worked in the industry for quite a long time. And he, I would imagine, has been on a lot of sets, you know? Sure. Uh, I'm sure Spike, uh, Spike Jones is kind of like, okay, on page 42, what the hell is this? You know, he's able to kind of uh, watch what these directors are doing. So in this film, I think he is using the experience that he's had of a lot of these films, most of the uh, award recognition that these films have received has not been for the writing, it's been for the acting. A lot of these movies, he has received uh, 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 writing accolades, don't get me wrong, but a lot of these movies have been uh, applauded for the performances specifically. Uh, so he's seen directors who are making it a point to craft these performances and to, and to translate this story and make it work, you know? It's, uh, you guys know, I don't have to explain. Actors are a pretty important part of a movie and if they don't work, guess what? Your movie doesn't work. It doesn't matter how existential or how many big ideas are working in it. You know, ask George Lucas with the prequels. <laughs> you know, if your actors aren't giving great performances, it's, it's really hard to connect with the audience. And I think considering this movie is about actors in and of itself acting their life out and their life reflecting what they're acting. It's kind of this, uh, uh, this synecdoche in and of itself. Um, that's a, a crucial part of this movie. And I'm so, uh, I was so impressed with a lot of the performers in this film, Michelle Williams as well. Uh, she's fantastic. And all of these people who are able to play not only their characters in real life, but this I don't know, this, uh, this uh, I'd say theatrical version of what they're really representing in this, uh, in this space, in this, I don't, does it, I don't think he has a name for it, but this just big, I think he just, what does he call it? Uh, just what, whatever the dome is called, you know, it's, I think he calls it like a warehouse or something like that. Uh, but these performances are, are layered, uh, they're nuanced. Uh, and I think for being a, a filmmaker who's, you know, this is his first time approaching uh, uh, the director's chair. I got to give him props. I mean, uh, the dude got nominated from the Palme d'Or with his first directorial effort. That's, that's, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at. You know, good job, Kaufman. Right. And, you know, and, uh, you know, talking about actors, Andres, I mean, yeah. uh, uh, in the films that he's written, you know, uh, he, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Chris Cooper actually won the Oscar for, um, an adaptation and then Meryl Streep was also nominated for that movie and also um, um, and and if I'm not mistaken Kate Winslow was nominated for Eternal Sunshine Eternal Sunshine yep. so you know people have been nominated from the scripts but from a directing standpoint you're right Garrett it's a completely different thing and you're right this movie is completely all about actors and I think that's what gives it like this distinguishing quality and you know you're right there's kind of like this kind of overarching um, and, and uh, uh, a theme of like uh, life imitating art or or mm. art imitating life. Yeah, which um, comes first? We don't we don't really know. Which, which the, comes first is like the chicken yeah. or the egg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of what this film kind of grapples with in a really interesting way. So much so that it's literally his attempt to fully bring life to the art to fully bring uh, a real humanitarian life experience to, to 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 the stage as a form of art, which is seemingly almost impossible so mm -hmm. yeah yeah and I, and I like that you mentioned the theatricality of it all considering that there is a lot of theater 
uh, aspects of this whole film. Uh, it's the idea of acting in the movie that you're in and playing within the parameters that you're allowed to play in, uh, considering uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Yeah, there, there's so much to this film. It, it's really, yeah. it, it's an incredible directorial debut. Uh, mm -hmm. So Kaufman deserves all the credit for it. Um, let's move on to 2015. Uh, Anomalisa, am I pronouncing that correctly? I feel like I'm going to mispronounce everything. Yeah, um, yeah Anomalisa. Uh, Anomalisa, which is an animated film, uh, which is another different venture for Kaufman. I, I, I feel like this is him purposefully wanting to do something different. Uh, what was your first reaction? I, I, I don't know when you guys saw Anomalisa, considering it was this animated Kaufman film. And I'll go with you, RB3, considering that you have been following Kaufman quite a bit. Um, yeah, no, I, um, I didn't see this one in theaters. Um, I haven't, okay. I don't think I've actually seen any of his movies in theaters, actually, now I'm thinking about it. Um, uh, but I didn't, even though this one was theatrical release during the time, and I probably could have mm -hmm. seen it, I didn't end up getting around to seeing it. It only played at Arclight in LA for like, I remember. yeah, I remember that. <laughs> um, <laughs> to me, <laughs> the Arclight yeah. guy remembers. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was pretty much the only place they were playing it. But yeah. I, I, um. For for me, like I, my first reaction to watching it was, wow, this animation is mind blowing, right? It's called directed mm -hmm. by um, Duke Johnson, and it's actually the first R rated film to ever be nominated for uh, the best um, animated feature Oscar, um, which is surprising because Team America came out in like two thousand four. Um, it was nominated for best song, but not for best animated feature. Snub. Um, yeah. It was <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, but the fact so it's really beautifully animated, and it has that kind of traditional Charlie Kaufman existentialism, yes. super deep themes that uh, you could kind of, you know, get behind. And it's very metaphorical and very deep on the level too, right? Like it's all about this one person thinking he's surrounded by, you know, uh, all of, you know, all, all the same people, um, you know, and really that's just, you know, it's ultimately a reflection as to um, how you're living your life, how you're living society, uh, you know, and, and I feel like one theme that, you know, we haven't really touched on in Kaufman's thing is like the whole idea of like a routine, right? And like how in um, um, uh, uh, Synecdoche, there we go, um, yeah. Synecdoche, New York, how there's kind of, you know, in the beginning opening sequence, there's kind of this um, collapse of time, even within the same scene where he literally wakes up, it's like September 12th. Then he goes into the next room, it's September 18th, and then he checks the mail or he checks the newspaper and it's like October 11th. Like, you know, there's kind of this collapse of time because there's like this routine that goes over and over. And that's kind of what this movie goes into, like how there's kind of like, there, you know, if when you're kind of bored and kind of content with life, everything kind of looks the same, except for the one person, the one thing that makes a difference. And that's what kind of true love is. I totally got all that. And I think that's all great and dandy. It just didn't, I personally just didn't connect with it that much. It just didn't connect with me on the same level as other Charlie Kaufman movies. I think part of it might be because they're animated figures and I don't, maybe not have, maybe I don't have as much of a, a human connection. It's kind of hard to have a human connection with a, with a puppet or with a, with a stop motion thing. But, um, or, or I, you know, I, I frankly, I just thought it was a little, I thought it was a little simple. You know what I mean? Like, as I think this, you know, I, I don't know, I won't necessarily say simple. Simple is not the right word, but I definitely think, you know, in terms of like what we come to expect from Charlie Kaufman, like big, epic, mind-blowing things there wasn't like a necessarily a mind-blowing thing in this movie there's a you know there's a lot of little things that you could look at and be impressed by you could be impressed by the animation but there wasn't like a a thing to it so that's my only thing so 
Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like part of that is kind of what I was getting to way back uh, uh, 10 years ago when we started this podcast, uh, when I said the idea of kind of the same thematic things as far as existentialism and time and connection, and we're all connected and the, the themes that kind of hit uh, as far as this movie goes. And then when I saw Thinking of Ending Things, I was like, oh, wait, I've seen this before. Um, but th that's just me, obviously. Uh, the idea of David Thewlis being the the voice and the, the actor in this movie, obviously we see him in I'm Thinking of Ending Things as well. Uh, Professor Lupin uh, put some respect on his name. Uh, Ares, <laughs> God of War, Wonder Woman. Uh, great movie, great scene. Uh, I love that scene, I don't know. Uh, oh, but either man. You don't like that scene? No, let's not turn it into the Wonder Woman podcast. It's already long enough. But to, <laughs> to, answer, to answer it quickly, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder Woman theme starts playing. We're going to get copyright um, struck. Great. Thank uh, you. Yeah. 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 Uh, my, he was also too spot on. And I was going to say, he's also Grand Fargo, too. Got to shout out Fargo. Uh, <laughs> he's amazing in Fargo. There you go. Man. There you go. Uh, but Sabrina, uh, same question that I had to RB3. Being a Kaufman fan and seeing this Kaufman animated film, I, I don't know what your thoughts were on this. Yeah, I have the exact opposite reaction of RB3, actually. Oh, no I, I enjoyed this kind of refreshing. It didn't need to be this whole huge, like, nonlinear structure, crazy timeline, all this interesting stuff. I like that he the thing that he made different was just the fact that he was using the stop motion animation. I thought that mm. was cool. And I didn't, I didn't need, I don't always need the story to be the most insane, crazy thing. I, it can be something simple. Like I enjoy films like Patterson. Um, and Patterson is like the most simple movie you could ever think of. And I'm not saying simple in a bad way. It's just like, it's just very subtle and very mm. light. And, and it, it's, it's sweet and charming and Deep, but it's not necessarily um, this big journey that we take with like I'm thinking of ending things or with Synecdoche, New York. So with this one, I really like the way that he kind of showed this character. I love the animation. I love him diving into those themes of like self-isolation. Every single person, I thought it was the funniest thing when it really is credited as like Tom Noonan is everyone else. <laughs> it's like we have like David Thewlis and everything and then it's just Tom Noonan, everyone else. And I love that because when I first started the film, I had no idea what to expect. I didn't see it in theaters, but I saw it a little after it was released. So um, I had no idea what I was going into with this one. And hearing all the same voices, I was confused for a second. I'm like, why is, like, we're hearing this conversation on a plane and I'm like, why does everyone sound the same? Like, they couldn't have gotten different voice actors. And then I, uh, like a few minutes funded, into it. It was funded by a Kickstarter after all. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Literally exactly. couldn't afford it. <laughs> like, it's just, and I, well, I had no idea that it actually was the same person at the time. I didn't know it was all Tom Noonan. And um, so then as it went on, I kind of understood that whole like self-isolation and being disconnected and kind of not seeing anyone, every, seeing everybody as the same and nobody really standing out because it's almost like this character feels, because he is so intelligent and he is so celebrated. We get it with the two female characters kind of gushing over him the second they see him it's almost like he feels like he's better than everybody else. That's why I don't feel bad for him. It's almost like he feels like he's above everybody else and he's purposely isolating himself. It's not like there's a reason for this isolation. It's like that he just feels like he can't connect with anybody, anyone else because he is so intelligent and he's, sure. 
just sees the world a little bit differently. And I like think Kaufman himself. No, I'm kidding. Ex- well, no, but like well, that's the thing. Well, I think kind of kidding. <laughs> well, that's that's exactly what it sort is. I think it's. Kidding. I love showing like imperfect people in in film and documenting that type of thing i i want to see flaws i want to see imperfections and i feel like we get that with this character which i thought was really interesting because in in the beginning he's kind of still stuck on this woman he dated 10 years ago and hasn't even seen but she still has the same voice as everybody else and then he sees her and it doesn't end well in the beginning and like and it's just that kind of cycle with his life because he's on, he has himself on a certain pedestal and everybody else is just all kind of the same. In his world, he's the only one that stands out. And then, um, I know I'm talking about this a lot. I'll, I'll finish up in a second. But And then he, he meets um, the woman and her voice is different. It stands out immediately. He gets dressed and he runs out and he has like, like a great night with her and he feels something and then he's making all these rash decisions saying he's going to leave his wife and he's going to leave his family. And then all these little details, the flaws that are in humans start to um, come out to him. She's eating and she and talking at the same time. She's clanking her fork against her teeth and he's complaining about it. And it turns him off completely from that. And then her voice starts to change the same as everybody else. It's almost mm. like he likes that shell of what he thought she was. And then when he realizes that she's a human and that she's flawed and that she's imperfect, the way that everybody else is he doesn't like her as much so i actually consider him not to be a villain but not to be like a protagonist that we celebrate i kind of consider this character to be like um kind of the example of someone who does self-isolate and kind of is completely disconnected from everyone and just like the horrors of growing older and living life that way because then everything is just dull everything is mundane and nothing's exciting and then you hold on to relationships um from 10 years ago and it still doesn't even live up to that standard that was already very low yeah there's so much there obviously to what you said sabrina considering um the idea of of having a protagonist that that considers himself uh to be a little bit above everyone else the pretentiousness of it all what that word rb3 where did that come from (laughs) Uh, <laughs> no one has ever said that when talking about Kaufman. Um, but, but it's one of those things where I like that you said Patterson, cause I'm going to push back a little bit. Uh, not, not anything against you, obviously, but this is my idea. I, as far as subtlety, I, I never feel like maybe I'm wrong. I don't think any Kaufman film is subtle at all. Versus something like a Patterson that is subtle or something like other films that I feel like can say and communicate these messages of existentialism uh, of relationships and are actually doing it very subtly without actually explaining it to you like we got, um, like we mentioned in Synecdoche of Uh, New York, where they're actually saying stuff and it's it's not very subtle uh, versus something like a Patterson that is. Uh, I don't think any Kaufman film has that. And maybe, I'm sorry, Sabrina, I'm not, I'm not, you're just like, I'm going to kill you, bro. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, that's the thing. It's the funniest thing that I said, Patterson. I still stand by it that this is yeah. his. I just use that as an example of like a sure. subtle film, a subtle story that's being told with profound meaning, but yeah. in an easier way to digest. And that's what I think about this one. I think this is the most subtle 
Kaufman sure. can ever be. And, and I it's think a stop motion, end, crazy film. It, and everyone's Tom Noonan, yeah. basically, except for yeah. two characters. And then one becomes Tom Noonan again. Um, so I think with this one, I think at the end of his filmography, at the end of his career, way into the future, I still think this is probably going to be the most subtle he can ever get. I don't sure. think we'll ever see him be like yeah. subtle ever. But this is something where I didn't think it's not this big bombastic story that needs to be told with different timelines and everything like that sure. the only thing that's weird is the animation and the stop motion is unique um and then the fact that everybody's tom newton that's something that's interesting <laughs> obviously garrett I'm, I'm assuming you're you're ready to just jump on me and correct me <laughs> on everything i said but but the idea of of the of taking these thematic elements of what kaufman likes to talk about about humanity insecurities existentialism mm -hmm. Uh, kind of what we've been through before and, and do it in a way that isn't subtle, that is very upfront, that is kind of in your face. Uh, it still can be confusing, but it's not, uh, it's it's using film in, in, to its full ex extent. It's not necessarily mm -hmm. pulling back uh, and being quiet. He's not a quiet yeah. filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, you look at something like Synecdoche, New York, uh, in the scale of that film, not only mm -hmm. thematically, uh, but practically, like what is the story? What is the, the, the story within the film? It, it's massive. Uh, thematically, it's also massive. It's this man's entire life, entire adult life, I should say. Uh, and in regards to Patterson, I think the scale of this film, I think is more comparable to Patterson. Um, but this film's scale compared to Synecdoche, it's literally smaller you know because they're dolls and they're they're figurines and you don't have this hangar filled with an entire city uh but patterson's telling a uh, great movie i, I think we, I, we all agree patterson great movie Patterson's great <laughs> uh, yeah uh, but the scope of that story is small and it's intimate and it's about a man uh so I, that's where i can see uh the 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 similarities between this and patterson but i think what i admire about this movie and rb3 said he kind of he didn't fully accept the the reduction of scale. I I think it's a really great pivot for Kaufman because even with something like Eternal Sunshine, you're dealing with these huge themes, these really heavy themes of love and memory and legacy and art and all of these things. And then now I think Kaufman is saying like, okay, well, I've taught you these lessons. Now, how can you apply it practically? And I think uh, this character, you're exactly right, Sabrina. It's a cautionary tale. You're not supposed to root for this guy. This is somebody who sees a lot of his interactions as, uh, uh, he works in sales. You know, he sees these people as a transaction. He's not making genuine connections with these people. They're all very superficial. Uh, he's a salesman. He's pretty arrogant. He's self-inflated. I wonder if a little bit of that is Kaufman kind of poking fun at himself. He's like, hey, I'm the big Hollywood guy now. Got a lot of Oscars under my arms, you know? Yeah, oh, you're so talented. Yeah, I know. I'm the troubled artist, you know? <laughs> I have to wonder if he is saying something like that. But once uh, David Thewlis' character is able to connect with Jennifer Jason Lee's character, he's able to see something that, you know, maybe not in her, but is missing in himself. Uh, but once he realizes that she's not able to fulfill that, because spoiler alert, Nobody's able to fulfill that. You got to work that stuff out. Uh, you got to work that stuff out yourself, dog. <laughs> uh, I think it's it's it is a, a completely a cautionary tale. It's using the tools that 
uh, in the lessons that we've learned from prior Kaufman movies and saying like, okay, well, this is how you do it practically. Here's a much smaller, more focused story. Still got that weird, bizarre, zany Kaufman flavor, which I really like. Uh, it wouldn't be a Kaufman movie without it. Uh, but it, yeah, it seems more practical uh, and it seems more, uh, it seems more relatable, uh, even if these uh, characters are animated uh, and completely fabricated. By the way, uh, did you guys know that sex scene took six months to animate? Six months. Worth That's it. crazy. That's <laughs> totally worth it. Totally. Speaking Oscar of Oscar uh, nominated. <laughs> speaking That's of right. uh, world, world police, it's like the second best sex scene uh, from puppets. <laughs> but. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's finish up uh, real quick with, uh, I'm thinking of ending things. Obviously, we, us three got to talk about it quite a bit. So I want to toss it to you, Garrett, uh, your thoughts on this film. Uh, I, I push back a little bit on the whole idea of it being like widely celebrated because I still don't know. I, I don't think it is. I think a few I critics. Think critically, critically, people critically? do enjoy it. Yeah, a yeah, lot that... of his films are. Um, sure, but I think I, I, I read a least... few... I read a few critics that were kind of pushing back on it. Maybe that's just yeah, of course. There's always I'll, I'll, cut you, I'll cut you off here. I don't there give a go. shit what anybody thinks about this movie. <laughs> this movie is awesome. <laughs> I yeah. stopped doing uh, reviews on my YouTube channel, and I've kind of transitioned into video essays. But man, okay. if I had the opportunity to review this movie. I, it would just be me gushing about it for like 25 minutes. I had this weird sense of clarity watching this movie, and I feel like everything just fit. And I just, I just, I got it. And I felt like I was just, Kaufman was there being like, hey, this is what I was thinking. And I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm with you, Chuck. You know, <laughs> I was just completely blown away by this movie. All the characters, uh, the, the, the twist that it takes. And it reminded me um, in a weird way of like Psycho. You know, you think you're following a specific character and then the movie mm. has this twist and the perspective changes and who you think you're following might not even be a real person. You know, mm. are we spoiling the movie? I think we're spoiling it, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, this person doesn't have a name. In the credits, they're listed as like uh, Lucy, Lucia, and uh, like different spellings of Lucia. You know, there's not a specific, they're, they're just a young girl and maybe they're going to school for poetry or maybe they're going to school for art or maybe they're going to school for this. They're just just a shadow of a person. They even, they even talk about that, just being a shadow. Um, this idea of, I've been talking about Kaufman's movies being in, uh, uh, in conversation with one another. I think a lot of these movies are mourning a sense of life. Uh, I think this movie specifically is mourning the possibilities of what your life could have been. Uh, and mourning the opportunities that you missed out on, the love that you didn't get to have, and the life that you didn't get to live. Uh, and I think Eternal Sunshine is the morning of what was. I lived this and how is it impacting my life? I think Synecdoche and that are a little bit more in step to where it's like, it's, uh, I think Synecdoche is a little more grand where you're thinking about your life, you're reflecting on everything that you've gone through, all the relationships and the connections and the mistakes that you made. How do you deal with that? This is also about growing old and reflecting on things that you didn't get to experience. Uh, and uh, uh, I just, yeah. I, I think it's full of so many fantastic details that I think this movie rewatching, I think will just be so, so rewarding. I, I watched this uh, very shortly after I watched Christopher Nolan's Tenet. And Ooh. that's a movie that frustrated me to no end. I obviously being a Kaufman fan, I love movies that you can dig deeper on and find new meaning and find new layers. But where I feel like Tenet's lacking in that, I think this movie completely fulfills where 
this movie is not going to get worse the more you watch it. It's just going to continue to unfold itself and unravel itself and might even take on new meaning uh, and new intricacies. I think it's, I don't, it's, it's not my favorite Kaufman movie, but boy, howdy, what a picture, you know? <laughs> it's <Yeah>. so good. <laughs> uh, I, I want to keep it with you because I, I want to yeah. ask you about the, the artist aspect of it all because I feel like that's a big portion of the film. I mean, there's a yes. lot of portions of this film, but the, the idea of art, of adaptation, of influence, of originality, um, yes. considering there's so many different types of art that he touches upon from poetry to, to actual yeah. paintings to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, musicals to th this. This is something that he touches. I mean, film, it, it, pretty much every aspect of art is touched upon in this film, in this movie. Uh, what do you think of that? And what do you think uh, he was trying to communicate in that? So as, as we've discussed in this, in this very podcast, uh, yeah. movies and art in general, it's going to impact you and it's going to change the way that we perceive the world. Uh, yeah. Art is reflective of the world that we live and in consuming it, it's going to change the way that we perceive the world. That's what's so great about art and movies in particular. Uh, this film, as you said, it touches on a lot. It talks about poetry, it talks about paintings, it talks about theater, and it talks about uh, cinema. And this character, this, this janitor character is living vicariously through all of these things. Uh, and to me, it's Kaufman kind of painting this brush. I haven't read the book, so I can't, from what I have heard, it's not really very similar. Um, so I can't, I don't know how much credit I can give to Kaufman, but you know, for simplicity's sake, let's say it's Kaufman. Uh, Kaufman is painting this, this, this uh, stroke of this person's mourning what they could have done and the life that they could have led. And uh, maybe I was a good painter when I was a kid. And I, yeah, there was that time where I really liked poetry and I love watching these movies and I see myself in these characters and the people I want to be with and the love that I want to have. I, I see myself on screen, which is something that I think we all can relate to, whether we're, you know, big cinephiles, big music heads, whatever it is. It's the, it's, it's the morning of looking back and being like, you know, when I was young, I was really passionate about this thing and I wanted to be that when I grew up, but now I'm a janitor at the school and the only sense of real happiness that I see is in the art, in the life that others get to live. You know, whether it's simulated like in, in cinema or it's simulated like in Oklahoma, you know, the, uh, the plays that he says that he's a big fan of. That's to me, it's again, it's another cautionary tale. I don't think you're necessarily supposed to dislike this character. Uh, but I felt a great sense of empathy towards them. Me being a young person who's, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed looking on what my life has to offer, to me, it was almost kind of a, you know, like a graduation charge. It's like, hey, man, that thing that you love, that thing that you're passionate about, go freaking do it. You know, pursue it head on because you would hate to look back at your life and think, what if, you know, what did I not do? Who's that girl that I didn't talk to? Uh, and who's all those, who, who are the, uh, the, the people that I didn't get to make memories with? I, you know, just totally flabbergasted by this movie. Again, what a picture. What a picture. <laughs> this this Kaufman guy knows what he's talking about. I, I like how this is the film that like inspired you. Uh, well, it's the, it's the most fresh. So it's like, you true, know, I'm true. Just, 
but it, but it's one of those things where yeah. where a, a film that kind of literally ch- t- uh, makes you want to take charge and like I'm going yeah. to L.A. and I'm going to do yeah. the movies. Yeah, Sing uh, Street was really big for me in that in that regard uh, too. Yeah, uh, but this isn't as happy go lucky as one of those movies, sure. and some people might even find it depressing. I know I watched it with a group of people because we were you know all a bunch of dorks. We're like, yeah, Kaufman's new movie. Yeah, um, but some of them were just kind of. It's, it's, it's strange. It's almost like an inkblot test. It's like, well, what do you see from this? And I, yeah. I, this is one of those films that I would be open ears to hearing whatever interpretation that some people sure. had. Some people have thought, maybe he's already dead. Maybe this is purgatory. You know, uh-huh. this is the I've afterlife. I, I just think it's, I'm, I, I, I think this is a great example of Kaufman planting the seeds, giving you a little bit to go off of, just enough that you can kind of start to go down certain trails. Uh, and I think what you will find on those trails is really, really rewarding. We all laughed and smiled at Lisa Brunetta because we saw a cat's head pop out into yeah, it's frame. it's well-behaved cat. Statuesque. But it literally like popped into frame. <laughs> popped, the, popped its head, just sat back down. She's like, I'm getting my screen time. She or he. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I love it. But I, Garrett, 100%. <laughs> A hundred percent everything that you said, that's exactly how I feel. I love that manipulating the audience, thinking that mm-hmm. this is going through the point of view and not to go on it mm-hmm. too much. But yeah, it's same thing with Anomalisa. It's interesting to see these be Charlie Kaufman's like last two films. Like that these, these are his last two films that he came out with. And mm-hmm. both of them are these cautionary tales of people who are struggling in certain ways. And in this particular one, yes. he's struggling with these insecurities. Yes. <laughs> he's struggling with his insecurities. <laughs> And it's, it's something that we see all throughout, um, even before you know the ending and you really know what it is, you see with these like absent parents and the girls that are laughing at him at school and stuff like that. Mm. It's like, we don't know necessarily if his parents were actually absent and they actually, not like absent, but kind of um, always, always putting him down a little bit, like that conversation they had about abstract art and saying like, oh, Jake was a painter. And that might've been a conversation that he had with his dad when he was a kid and all of that. And then the girls who are laughing at him in the hallway probably weren't we're seeing it through his point of view and through his lens and it's probably an unreliable narrator and he's just so insecure that he feels that way and then again with that self-isolation and that reflection back on yeah what could have been in his life it's it's something that I actually felt the opposite of you I felt super super I enjoyed this movie so Mm -hmm. much but I actually felt very um odd after watching it I couldn't quite very bummed out I couldn't quite my finger on what it was it is motivating when i think about it like this and i'm speaking about it with you guys but after watching it i felt anxious and i felt Mm. almost like and it's it reminded me of the line uh from eternal sunshine where clementine says like i'm always anxious thinking i'm not living my life to the fullest and then i see this film and i'm like yeah i'm like we gotta we gotta do more let's pump this out i don't want to be i don't want to be reflecting on my life and thinking about what could have been um so it gave me an odd feeling but it is still a motivational feeling as well uh like a lot of coffin's work i'm still i'm still gonna do it guys and i'm sorry but i still love hearing you guys talk about that stuff and i'm you guys are children (laughs) it's like i haven't lived life to the fullest um i know it just gets worse from here yeah. Hold on. If you think that, though, I think you kind of missed the point, Andreas. You know, you're oh, not too you old. You're, you're a young man. You yeah. still have a lot of life to live. You don't want to yeah. be that janitor, you know, thinking yeah. about yeah. what you could have done or, oh, you know, I didn't get to talk to that girl. I didn't ask for her number. Uh, I didn't do uh, ABC, you know, so. Uh, there it is, it. man. Take it and run. <laughs> Daisy Ridley, where you at? <laughs> <laughs> She's over oh, at my sorry. house. You got to yeah, yeah, Exactly. <laughs> 
chaos walking walking doing it with uh yeah (laughs) chaos walking working with kaufman um yeah no it's funny because i had that too uh back in 2014 when i moved to la damn 2014 i moved to la six years ago um i've been here for six years y'all uh anyway see i just had that moment right there you saw it uh, in real time ladies and gents existential moment of just like oh the meaning uh, of Andreas Cabrera. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, but my film that did it, I think a lot of people was 2016. I've talked to a ton of people that moved mm-hmm. to LA because of La La Land. Um, but the, to me, the one that did it uh, was a movie that came out in August of 2014. Uh, and that was uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> uh, but Guardians of the Galaxy made me so filled with like joy that i that's the la la land effect of it all where i was like man i can do this like i'm moving to la i'm gonna do it and literally the next month i moved to la wow uh, like that's amazing 25 that's days later i moved to la um i was that inspired and that motivated by that movie i just it made me feel so much joy i uh, hope you get to tell james gunn that one day i bet yeah, you have to hear that. yeah 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 and, and it's one of those things where to for me it's guardians and for you it's i'm thinking of anything by charlie <laughs> kaufman uh same thing same thing yeah, yeah. uh what about yeah. you rb3 i want to yeah. hear a little bit of what you think um of of the movie or of, of the film yeah oh, when okay. i moved to la <laughs> well, I, was, I was gonna say i'm here for my about life so. now guys yeah yeah why not um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I really, I really uh, enjoy. I'm thinking of ending things. And I'm, uh, like I said, in the reviews is probably, um, if not my number one, probably number two of the year. Um, yeah. I, I did enjoy so, Tenet, so it probably. Oh yeah, you loved Tenet. Yeah, I, did, I still I did haven't enjoy. seen it. Yeah, so those, those two will probably go go a little bit back and forth for me. But I, um, you know, I, I, I really. Um, it's funny because when we did our, our spoiler review, I had came to the my my interpretation was that, and I guess it's a hot take now, was that, like, it wasn't from his perspective. It was actually from her, inside of her mind, and that, you know, it was, uh, it, it, it took place from inside of her mind, and that, you know, we were expect he was the, the figment of imagination, and perhaps it was, uh, the perhaps she was the janitor, or, or perhaps the, he, the janitor was imagining the story from her perspective. That was yeah. kind of my conclusion. I, ultimately, they ended up not being correct because uh, Charlie Kaufman put out an interview yeah. on IndieWire and it kind of ended up explaining <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of movie. Um, but you know, I, I I totally get it. Like I, you know, that's what that's what cinema is. It's supposed to make you think. It's supposed to give you interpretations. And you know, it's definitely suited for rewatching. Like I, this one is probably one of the lesser rewatchable. Charlie Kaufman movies, not because of a lack of skill or a lack of execution, just literally because of the tone, just literally mm-hmm. because it's a horror film and it's a thriller film and it has like this very eerie, disturbing kind of yeah. texture to it that makes mm-hmm. it a little bit more indigestible just from that level. But I mm-hmm. do think, you know, it just continued, it's a, another continued example of the brilliance of his, of his storytelling, of his filmmaking in order to take his kind of existential, um, somewhat depressing interpretation of life and kind of flip that into uh, a psychological horror thriller kind of kind of concept. Yeah. I love I love that. It, it's kind of it's kind of tragic as well. You know, it, it is yeah. a taxing watch and watching it, you're like, especially the first time, you're just like, for one, 
where is this going? What is going on? But also knowing that it's a Kaufman movie, you're really, I was super dialed in, like hanging on to every word. And you're just like, yeah. there's these conversations that aren't going anywhere. Like, you know, where is this going? I was actually right there with you. I was thinking it was from her perspective, but I, you know, I think uh, there is that switch, switch mm -hmm. in there. But yeah, I, uh, I, I'm making this movie sound a lot happier than it is. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, I would, I would be surprised if Kaufman isn't, telling us this story in a way that is meant to, you know, encourage us, live life, you know, enjoy art, make some art. You know, we, we have plenty of artists in this po very podcast, you know, so, you know, we're, we're doing it right now. We're making a podcast. We're doing, we're doing the things. So <laughs> yeah. wish fulfilled. Thanks Kaufman. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure Kaufman is, is, uh, is happy. He inspired us to do podcasting. <laughs> and he got, this, he got this far. Yeah. Thanks yeah. Chuck. Appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's like podcasting, <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, um, well, it, like I, he talks about film criticism and consider oh, basically true. it's it's showing that he does consider it like an art form. So, yeah. and he's he's giving respect to that. So I I found that really interesting as well. Now yeah. that we're on the topic of Charlie Kaufman and film criticism and podcasts yeah. and everything, I think in that conversation he's also poking fun at himself a little bit because if you listen to a lot of the critiques that they have or critiques that you could easily put across his film, so I do think it's a bit self indulgent. I think he is he, I think he is teasing critics a little bit, but I do think it comes from a place of like hey, what you guys do, totally valuable, uh, but also maybe lay off a little bit, you know? <laughs> it's interesting how many films, and, and I'll end here because I think I don't want to get in too much into it, but the idea mm -hmm. of film criticism being talked about in film, uh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, obviously Birdman, that's theater criticism, but I feel like it's very similar. Uh, that entire scene is very much uh, uh, like an at-the-camera type of thing, fourth wall breaking, at least in my opinion, when they were saying the the idea of criticism versus the idea of creating an original piece uh it stayed with me because i was just like hey what are you saying about me no i'm kidding um <laughs> definitely not a film critic <laughs> uh but it but it was that idea of like huh that's interesting points that I've, i haven't heard before uh from a very passionate theater uh director that is michael keaton's character uh, but yeah, you're right. He does work with a, a film critic. I forget her name. I think she... Pauline Cow. Pauline Cow. Yes. Pauline yeah. There you yeah. go. There you go. Um, and and that's the thing. I I think he's I think he's doing it in a respectful way because what I see criticism as I I think criticism is necessary for evolving any kind of art form or any kind of craft and in, in mm -hmm. any way because it's it opens up discussion about what it is that we're seeing if we didn't have criticism we wouldn't have all these people making videos talk explaining things and talking about what this film in particular even means or a bunch of other films that we see ending explains or like reviews that go into detail and we wouldn't be celebrating this work in that way and having those kind of discussions so that's why i think criticism is an art form in itself um make sure you guys like and subscribe <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean i, I can reviews yeah, yeah. it's interesting because I'm, I'm kind of on the opposite spectrum of it all sabrina where i hate those videos <laughs> uh, well i'm I, not talking about just like sure. ending explained and stuff but it's opening up that discussion about what sure. we saw yeah. yeah, discussion in, 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 in video essays and stuff like that I love because I feel like yeah. that's more of a love letter. But I feel like film criticism has, has turned into how many bad things you can point out inside a film to make yourself look cool. Uh, or Bing. how many, yeah, <laughs> or, or how many things you can say to, to kind of pull something down. I don't know. I just feel like discourse ha has 
been a lot of benefits. It's what we talked about with Lindsay Ellis when she was on here. Uh, the idea of what has evolved with film criticism, considering everything is now online and that a lot of it is more YouTube centered than anything else. And the YouTube algorithm itself promotes negativity uh, and being a little bit more uh, pessimistic and, and just saying something is bad and putting like, this is real bad in the title of your video. Well, oh, let me, okay, wait, let me, okay, let me stop. Wait, let me, let me, let me stop right here because I did talk and wait, we're just going to go to three hour podcast. But, <laughs> yes, right, we let are. Just, let me just say this. <laughs> yes. we, I did we, it. I broke the three hours. Yeah. <laughs> um, when, uh, I'm, it's almost midnight where you're at too. I'm so sorry. But, you know, we did it's talk, you, you know, uh, we, we did talk to, um, we did talk to uh, Jer Jeremy Scott of Cinema Sins, right? And he, and we kind of talked about like that that kind of negativity mm -hmm. that's in the film space, right? And you got to think about it. This negative is not the negativity, and he made a great point, which I never thought about. Negativity is not necessarily a new thing in Hollywood, right? Like mm -hmm. when Michael Keaton was first announced as Batman, all they did was write letters about uh, uh, to Warner Brothers about how much they hated it. Um, and and when and the the example that Jeremy brought up was in Star Trek Two when the rumor came out that uh, they were going to kill off Spock, uh, there was mad fans who wrote letters to the studio back then. So like, it's definitely the negativity and the pessimism have always been there in the fandom. Difference is now is that the internet makes it so much more accessible. Whereas in the mm -hmm. past, you couldn't see who wrote letters and whatever happened. Now you yeah. can actually How literally see that stuff in comment sections. Yeah. You can literally see that stuff in, uh, in, yeah. in all across yeah. the board. So, I, uh, I've seen, I've seen accounts that are just like this. It's every video is like, this movie is bad literally in the title. Yeah. Click here. And that's yeah. something that I find interesting. Um, but yeah, I, uh, negativity is definitely not a new idea. I, uh, I, uh, worked a, a senior project last year, uh, put 90 hours into this thing. Uh, but it was talking about film criticism and oh, there you the, go. The, the the bilateral uh, Rotten Tomato system. And is that damaging? You know, I it talked is. to Jacqueline Cole. You say it is? Yeah. I talked to Jacqueline Coley, uh, editor at Rotten Tomatoes. I talked to Leonard Malton. He's been in it for a long time, way before Rotten Tomatoes. Talked to people like Dan Merle and just, you know, people who are in the business and yeah. kind of got their, their, uh, their, their uh, input on it. Obviously it's a, it's, quite an extensive project. I don't have to get into it, but the short answer is it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. complicated because I do feel yeah. like you can't just say this has been going on forever and be like, it's going on forever, just the internet. The internet is exponential. Like the internet has amplified it times a hundred. Like you can't just- I don't know I if didn't, it amplified I didn't... it. The pop yes, population it population goes up. Like no. there's gonna definitely be more of something. <laughs> if my more... cousin's cousin writes a letter to Batman because he hates Michael Keaton, I didn't hear about it. I didn't yeah. know about it. But if I go online and my other cousin goes online, like online atmosphere, it's but that, that doesn't I mean feel it's like not that's there. The it just, we, it we doesn't mean it's the exact not same there. Thing. We're all fighting. But, but no, but what I'm saying is, as Bro, I mean, guys, no, but guys, I'm saying, calm down, kids. Yeah, you have the talking, <laughs> have the talking stick, yeah. so you go. That's <laughs> not how we do it here. I'll first go. We just yell. We just yell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it goes. It's the perfect example. Michael Keaton, Batman. Robert Pattinson, Batman. Both of them people had negative stuff to say about it. We just people. Those kind of people gathered as a community to kind of yeah. go against well, Robert Pattinson. But it's the same thing because it's all going to the same place. It's all going to the people exactly. in charge. So even the letters, they all got together without realizing that they got together to do something like this. Like uh, 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 it's. Uh, I'll, I'll add a bit of silver lining here, and then maybe Andreas, you could take it home. Okay. <laughs> silver lining, technology, social media, YouTube, things like that. 
I can think of probably a dozen movies I never would have seen if it were not for True. the internet and somebody being like, hey, man, I think you would love this. You know, and they're movies That's... that I really, really enjoy. To be fair, uh, we wouldn't be talking about Charlie Kaufman if it wasn't for the internet and social media and yeah. YouTube and all these kind of things. So that's true. Sh- and, but that's, sharing- that's yeah. No, go ahead. And- no, sh- sharing art and uh, and sharing opinions or something like that, uh, or saying, "Oh, did you think about this?" You know, and sharing yeah. that different perspective and somebody's you know change somebody's mind, change somebody's life. Uh, I think that's super, super valuable. Absolutely. Uh, especially not just. Uh, in regards to appreciating art, but socially, you know, uh, I think the technology has done a lot of good. It's done a lot of bad, but not to discount the good that it's done, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, going, going off of that, I mean, you know, there, there's literally, I would, part of, part of one of the many reasons why I love Syndicate New York is because uh, Adam from your movie sucks, did like a whole like six part or seven part, like breakdown of it. And, uh, mm-hmm. and and that was one of the many reasons why I ended up Absolutely. falling in love with that movie. So there's definitely a benefit. I was going to say, though, Andres, like, to, I'm not arguing that it's, it's different. <laughs> it's definitely different. It's bigger. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that, like, I'm yeah. not saying it, I wouldn't necessarily say it's different because it's always been there. It's just now we can see it. Now it's a visible. Sure. But, but that's yeah. a difference. That, that's a big difference, though. It's uh, a difference for us, but it's not a difference for the community. It's, you know, it, sure. for me personally, I don't give a, if somebody said negative about something, I don't care. Like, it's never going to, it's never going to scratch my back. If, if something, if somebody tells me today that they hate the social network, I'm not going to care. Like, That's you though. The yeah. point of, 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 of it all is the idea of the influence of the mind of people who might not, who, who just see a Rotten Tomato score and just like F that movie. And I'm like, you've never even seen it. Uh, that's kind of what I'm referring to. Uh, but either way, uh, what Garrett said, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. my thing is, is, is just, it's just, I prefer if I had a choice, do I want to talk about a film that I hated or do I want to talk about a film that I loved? I'm always going to go to the film that I loved. Exactly. And maybe that's not exactly. what YouTube wants and what people want to hear, but that's what I want. Hey, to. If, if we can take antebellums. Oh of the yeah. world I, I, haven't seen it I haven't seen it yet i did watch your guys's review and i was like now i'm kind of more curious <laughs> yeah. if we're taking any lessons from charlie kaufman live life to the fullest and despite yeah. what you know might get the most clicks be true to yourself you know there you go. Uh, artistically what makes you happy fulfill that and the, the right audience will come along there you go and with that gary thank you so much for joining us man Absolutely. This has been a pleasure. I'm sorry I made wow. you guys go a little bit long. Yeah, real I long. really, really love this. Uh, I do want to tease, uh, since talking about something uh, negative, on my channel coming in uh, December, this is like the first place that I've really talked about this, <laughs> to the, like the 10 people still listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm working on a retrospective uh, video essay and my journey as a fan my whole life of The Rise of Skywalker, a film that I've really struggled with, but I want to find the good in it. I want to find what I like about it, still be faithful to, or still be honest about what I don't like about it, and just kind of how my entire fandom has influenced how I feel about this movie. Uh, the oh. video's already like 15 pages long, so it's gonna be a long one, but I am super, super excited about it. And I have another video coming soon about how to not be a film bro, uh, which I'm very excited about. So yeah, look yeah. forward to those uh, on my YouTube channel. It's just my name, Garrett McDowell. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Um, <clears throat> I feel like I'm that, I'm the Rise of Skywalker guy. <laughs> Yeah, who, totally. who can I can literally write books about that movie? 
yeah. considering how much I've, I've been jabbed at because of it. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I, I'm very used to having my hands up, and I'm like, oh, I've taken all the jabs. It's all hey, good. Hey, man, uh, follow me on Twitter. You and I will have some conversations because there's there you stuff, go. you know, maybe we'll have to get a private Zoom call here. There you go. <laughs> but uh, there's stuff that I'm wrestling with that I'd love to talk about for sure. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I feel like I, I got into it a little bit with, with, with Ken and I uh, on Force Center. We did one, and then obviously on Council. Uh, I've actually but, uh, been listening to a lot of Force Center because they're two voices yeah. that I highly respect and they love that movie. So I've been listening to a lot Listen of their Listen to stuff. their Rise of Skywalker episode. Yeah. Because uh, he mentions I've, me and I'm like, yeah, that's the one mention I'll get. And it's yeah, a yeah. lot of I, what I think is what they say. Yeah, I've downloaded like 10 episodes of them talking about various aspects of that movie because yeah. it, it's better now. But initially I was like, why do people like this? You know, yeah. I want to know why. Now I feel like I have one of a bit more insight. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's literally just us three uh, oh. <clears throat> that like the movie. So there you go. <laughs> oh, you guys uh, are the three. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The three people that liked it. Uh, where can they find you? Yeah, exactly. Uh, on on social media. Uh, my Twitter name. So, there's some other Garrett McDowell running around out there. I'll okay. find him one of these days. Uh, but my name is at Garrett McDowell. Uh, that's M C D O W E L one. Uh, okay. So, so yeah, that's where you guys can find me. I tweet stupid stuff about movies, uh, life stuff, politics stuff, because I think that's yeah. important now. Uh, please vote, wear a mask. Uh, it could save somebody's life. There you go. Uh, RB3, where can everyone find you? All right, you can find me Twitter and Instagram at Director RB3. Sabrina. Twitter and Instagram at Sabrina X Monica, and then also Twitter at Sabrina on Film. Uh, obviously, guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we are at First Cut TMO. You can follow me at Squad Leader Race. Keep up to make sure and tune in October 6th for our new Star Wars show, Sabak the Block, with Emma Fife. Uh, talking about Star Wars, we're going to get into it. It's going to be a lot of fun, so make sure you guys are there and tuning in. Uh, if you're still listening to this, God bless you. Uh, <laughs> uh, Top the Kaufman fans, uh, peace out. <laughs>